Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great And this week, our guest is crime novelist Nick Quantrill. Thanks for coming on, Nick. No, thanks for having me. Good evening. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Nick. Uh, The magazine we're looking at this week is a copy of Shoot from the 22nd of February 1986. And uh, so we'll just get in and we'll look at the cover. So on the cover, we've got Everton's Peter Reid. Uh, and uh, I, but I think it's got a pretty good Everton kit uh, where it's uh, white on the, the, the chest with the blue NEC sponsor, Lacoste Sportif, and uh, there's a wee, wee flash of yellow trim as well. So it's a cup special issue, and shooter trailing Reed joins our all star team. Uh, Luton's High Flyers colour group. Then we've got a picture of Chelsea's David Speedy with a blonde bombshell. Who's wearing Kerry's shirt? Uh, so it's a picture of a glamour model, as we'll find out later on, uh, in the number nine Chelsea shirt. Gordon Cowan's amazing comeback. And England on the Nile. That's up at the top. So that's England playing in Egypt. Uh, cover price is 40 pence. And uh, this particular issue has got Spencer penciled in on the S of shoot. So obviously someone called Spencer was getting that from his local newsagent. Anything that you... Yeah, yeah. Just uh, so you, you mentioned you mentioned the top there, and it, it, it's just struck me that it, it's actually there's a few teams had this style. Maybe not this time, but the bib. It's it's essentially the mm. bib kit, and it's never worked. I've seen it on St Mirren, maybe St Johnston, and it always looks awful. So so this is the first time I've seen the equivalent, something similar to that, and it actually, as you say, it works. And I never noticed the 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 yellow piping on it around either, which is a nice wee touch. I quite like it, but I don't know if Everton fans are particularly keen on it because it's sort of away from that sort of traditional style. Mm. Yeah, well, I think with C eight four eight five, it was this was the season that they didn't win the league, wasn't it? So yeah. maybe, maybe in fact, I don't think they won anything that season. Um, so maybe it won't have remembered fondly for that. But I like the shots as well. So, so Nick, you were saying off here that you think you might have actually have read this issue at the time? It's, it's, it's entirely possible. I mean, I would have been 11 years old when this magazine was on sale, which was kind of like my peak period of football nerdism, I suspect, as a child. Um, you know, it was 85, 86. It was a brilliant time to be a whole city supporter as I was going to watch games as a child. And um, I was, you know, I was absolutely obsessed with watching football on the telly. And um, obviously, like, as Andy was saying, this was the... The FA Cup season only with a big Merseyside derby at the end of it, which is kind of, I think, one of them great big iconic games we all remember with Ian Rush scoring the, the goal that knocked the camera over in the corner. Uh, and it leads into the Mexico 86 World Cup, um, which for me, I know it's my first World Cup, but I genuinely think it is 
the greatest Welsh filmmaker to eighty six. Maybe even the last great Welsh film. I'd even go so far as to say maybe die on that hill. But um, yeah, that that time period for me is, is a lot of happy memories as a football fan. Um, and, and as Andy was saying about the whether about Everton fans and whether they like it or not, because I, I think it's a really nice share that did yeah. really well, doesn't it? But the coach of my daughter's football team is a massive Everton fan, and I kind of showed him the picture of Peter Reid on it, and he just kind of shook his head and said, "It's a loser's kit." Because <laughs> it was a season they lost the league title to Liverpool and the FA Cup if they want it. So it's obviously a, a kit that has a lot of bad memories. But um, yeah, I think it's a well smart kit. It, it really works. But yeah, probably the first time I've noticed the yellow little pinstripe on it as well, almost around the edge of the bib. So yeah. it's, but it's great. It's great. And you know, yeah, 86, that's my time. That's a great choice of, uh, of magazine for me. So I reckon I probably would have read this as a child in my house with my mum and dad. It just back, backs up this, this theory that goes about, doesn't it, Tom, about. Your your favourite World Cup, your favourite time is sort of around about your eleven, twelve year old. Yeah, 10, 11, 10, 12. 11, 12. Yeah. So for me, it was it was eighty two. So that's I was ten and eighty two, and you know I I think of the Spain eighty two exactly the way you think of Mexico eighty six. So there is a there is a bit of a um, data to back that up that that seems to be the case. Yeah, yeah, and I've tried to argue this with friends as well, and I think eighty six. You've still got them that sense where countries have their own individual playing styles, haven't you, before the game becomes really kind of globalised and and, and and the styles become homogenised to a degree, you know, you, and you've got those kind of like great stories as well as the obvious ones like Maradona, you've got the emergence of people like Yossi Maroni of Brazil who came um, brightly for about two weeks and was never seen again. Um, Denmark uh, team. The, the Dan- yeah, the Danish team. I mean, you got all these kind of like really interesting stories, aren't you? You've, you've, all the teams like Uruguay playing like as you imagine, South American teams to play. You've got the ruthless German efficiency machine. You've got them kind of Eastern European countries who kind of rely on power, don't you? And that kind of unknown quantity behind that. And it's just, it's a great World Cup before we, we before we know world football as it is now, essentially, where, you know, nobody's undiscovered. No, no yeah. team is undiscovered in a World Cup, is it? And I think that was the last one for me, right? This really kind of captures that sense of individual styles for countries as well as just brilliant individual stories like, like you know, like Maradona obviously winning it for, for Argentina. Literally single-handedly, I suppose we'd have to say. But um, you know, so I think that was just. Plus, you add in the Mexican colour as well. You know, them bright green pitches and the massive goal nets and the Azteca Stadium. It's just, it's just brilliant. It's a brilliant World Cup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was also World Cup of England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland as well. So yeah. you had that kind of, and it was all players you knew from the English leagues, Scottish leagues, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Scotland, had the group of death in the '86 yeah. with uh, it was a Uruguay, Denmark. Denmark. And Germany. West, Ger- West Germany, yeah, yeah. West Germany is away, yeah, which is a horrible draw, absolutely horrible draw, isn't it? And uh, yeah. but then you know, incredibly close again, the group as well, weren't they? Really, they should have done it. I think was it the last game with the Uruguay down yeah. playing against ten men for most of the game? Yeah, forty seconds. Yeah, you get, get sent off after forty seconds. Yeah, I know it's crazy, but uh, the Scottish players all say that the, U- the Uruguayans were spitting on them and pulling their mm-hmm. hair and all this, and like you know, pulling the here's at the legs and all these kind of sneaky, sneaky tactics that you were, you know, expecting in the South Americans, yeah. But yeah, I think Denmark was a sort of unknown quantity at the, yeah. at the time. I don't think people really expected them to be quite as good as they turned out to be. So they kind of shocked us that first game. They beat us one nothing, but because I, 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 I remember it being, we thought we were going to, this was, a, they, they were basically effectively the minnows, I think, in our, in our group, you know, uh, and turned out not to be the case. Yeah, and they had a crazy World Cup, didn't they? Was it six to still crash Uruguay and then get five but pass them by Spain, Spain in the top yeah. stages? It's just crazy, isn't it? From one extreme to the other. But yeah, basically, like Loudrup and LKR, they just, you know, just emerged onto the world scene, I guess, at that point, didn't they? And we just 
tremendous, tremendous footballers. Yeah. As well as the kit, obviously. What a kit. What a shirt. Yeah. Uh, again, we've talked about this before. There's a few teams that had that style last in Villa, mm. Coventry. But for some reason, the Denmark one's just the one where it works, just works the best. Yeah, maybe it's that kind of bacon thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just has a quite the right colours and context, doesn't it? And the, and the, and the contours of it. But um, it is an absolutely iconic chair and an iconic team. Yeah. So, so Tom, I, I, I don't, I don't think we can leave the front page without describing yeah. David Speedy there. What's going on? <laughs> so, so David Speedy in his Chelsea kit, he's facing the camera, smiling, pointing to this model who's got her back to so he, she's wearing his kit as well but I don't know if it's the same shorts they certainly look as though they may be slightly shorter shorts than the ones he's wearing which are pretty short anyway but you know there's is there's a lot of sexualization going on there and it gets yeah, we'll, worse inside as well yeah we'll get to the article but it's, it's peak 80s yeah. actually peak sort of tabloid 80s um, but yeah we'll, we'll get to it eventually mm. yeah okay. so we'll be going to the going to the magazine then so Pages two and three. So this is a feature on uh, Gordon Cowens and it's headlined, Bobby Never Forgot Me. After two broken legs, Gordon Cowens zips back into World Cup contention. So uh, Gordon Cowens, I think at the time he's playing in uh, in Italy, but uh, as well known as that one of the European Cup we asked in Villa. Any memories of Gordon Cowens as a player, Nick? Um, not so much, because as you say, at this point he's playing in Italy, isn't he? And you kind of yeah. forget that. We often think that with these sort of, British players didn't really go abroad, but when you start looking at it, a lot of them, there's quite a few who did, didn't they, you know, playing at these kind of like smaller level club, like Gordon was at Barry, wasn't he, at the time? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I probably didn't see an awful lot of him play, to be honest, because he was, you know, you, you just weren't watching those types of matches on TV, was you, in the mid-80s, they weren't available. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, Aston Villa were, were, were never going to come to Boothry Park at the time, they were, they were Division 1 teams, so... Um, I don't really remember Gordon as a player particularly, but I, I enjoyed reading the article about him, and, and his... You know, it's quite interesting to read that. You know, you talk about the season at Barry, now we basically season behind the ball. It's just a season of trying to contain opposition players, and then he has to go and play for England, where he's expected to get box to box, and it absolutely yeah. kills him. He's come back from two broken legs, and it sounds like his lungs are actually knackered from this kind of <laughs> box to box running for Bobby for Bobby Robson out in Egypt in the friendlies. So, uh, and of course, he didn't, he didn't make the final squad either. So, mm. no, looking at the final squad, I'm guessing that may be. Steve Hodder is the man who possibly got in ahead of him, which, okay. you know, I'm guessing, you know, his part in the goal, Lineker's probably third goal, I think it was against Poland, you know, probably justifies the uh, the decision. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, Gordon, Gordon Cowens was, was a fantastic footballer, wasn't he? But not one that I don't think I ever saw play in person. Yeah, another one of those kind of creative sort of mm. midfielders kind of thing that England sort of, like Hoddle, that England kind of maybe treated as a kind of luxury kind of thing rather than your kind of, Sleeves yeah. up and dig in midfielders, you know? which makes his move to Barry all the more kind of puzzling on the face of it, really, doesn't it? Where you know you go in there to basically just dig in and, and you know you, it's going to be one striker at Barry, and you're just hanging on for for what you can get, trying to grind out the draws and the points to stay in Serie A. And on the face of it, I don't really that's not his game. It's a it feels like a strange kind of mismatch of of, of, of circumstances, really, to me. I'm, I'm wondering if he went there because I mean, as it mentions, he two broken legs, so maybe he he went there to sort of get back in. I mean, he ended up spending three seasons there, um, which was longer mm. than I thought, but maybe it was due to the injury he didn't think, or maybe Aston Villa didn't think that he had it in him anymore. I mean, he went back to Villa after this, um, and I did check that he's next, so, so he did get another cap after the one against Egypt, but it was 1990 was his, his cap, which wow. was a European 
uh, qualifier against the USSR, I think, and th- and that was it. So, um, you know, three three years there, as you say, it's it sort of flew under the radar a bit um, for myself. Yeah. But um, yeah, definitely a quality player. Won the the European Cup with Villa while at Villa, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think he was there as well. He looks he looks yeah. a bit of a rugged a rugged player. But as, as you say, Tom, you know, he was he was a he was a good creative midfield player. But just you know, looks wise, and I'm sorry if you're listening to this, Gordon. It looks as though he's 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 seen a few, you know. So um, I think what how, how, how was he? Was it 27 or something at, at this point? Is that right? Yeah, 27. It says in the article. Yeah, and you yeah. know, he's, he's got that kind of aging look about him, has he? But yeah. then. You know, to come back in 1990 and get a cap as well, so that makes him into his early 30s after two broken mm. legs and playing in Italy for that time is that's that's some going into it, really. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not to be dismissed lightly, is it really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, so we'll go over the page then for some FA Cup previews. So, this is Shoots All Star panel of experts judge this week's FA Cup ties, and so we've got Charlie Nicholas and Peter Reeds, and then we've got Ian Rush and Brian Robson uh, all talking about the coming FA Cup games. Uh, so Charlie Nicholas is talking about his own his own prospects, Luton v Arsenal. He's saying, I suspect I'll be marked by Mal Donaghy, but that will depend if now Quinn is playing alongside me. So uh, uh, interesting there, obviously, in that era, you've got players talking about, you know, the games coming up kind of thing and, uh, you know, what they're, what they're expecting kind of thing. You know, the kind of thing you see nowadays and these kind of yeah it's, it's, it's quite candid isn't it really when you start reading it it's, it's surprising how much they're kind of almost talking tactically about the games that are coming up and um you know it's, it's quite a difference of the kind of bland nonsense we get from players these days isn't it, generally <laughs> speaking so yeah I was, I was quite surprised looking back at this at how kind of candid it was you know like Charlie Nicholas saying that um you know that if Nal Quinn plays and that means Steve Foster what Mark came will be up against kind of uh, Mal Bonnerhey what well, he probably think he's a bit a bit slower maybe he can kind of use yeah. his his pace and skill around him, but he, don't, he clearly doesn't fancy playing against Steve Foster, does he? Which uh, is probably a wise move. Nobody would want to face Steve Foster, I suspect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's something that goes across the full page, isn't it? You know, like we must push Hoddle, says Peter Reid, and, and they kind of, you know, he isolates Ben Hoddle as the main man at Tottenham, but then he's talking about how they're going to kind of combat them. And yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising just how candid some of these comments are, really, from the players. You're thinking, you know, the managers are supposed to be thinking, you know, let's keep them under the hat for the games. <laughs> so it's pleasantly surprising. Yeah, have you spotted anything there, Andy? You want to? Um, well, I mean, just the, the photographs, the Ian Rush photograph isn't doing them any justice at all, is it? It's um, <laughs> it, you know he's got his his chin right up and there's a double chin going on there, so it's hardly the the most flattering one there. But um, I, I I don't know if you're going to talk through the results of these games. Uh, I was uh, I yeah. looked up what the actual scores were, so uh, it was Luton Town to Arsenal two. Uh, Ricky Hill scored in the ninth minute for Luton and Ian Allenson equalised a minute later uh, David Rocastle putting Arsenal in front and Mick Harford equalising uh, and then just rattled through the other ones Peterborough United drew two each with Brighton and Hove Albion uh, York City drew uh, one each for Liverpool Southampton and Millwall drew 0-0 well, I, was going to, I was going to go into a bit more detail because it's quite interesting so Luton Arsenal Drew 2-0, two, two then they drew 0-0, nil, nil, and then Luton beat Arsenal 3-0, um, which was a, a right upset. Southampton, Millwall, drew 0-0, nil, nil, then it was 1-0 to Southampton. Derby versus Sheffield Wednesday, drew 1-1, one, one, then it was 2-0. Uh, 
Spurs in the Everton. Everton won 2 1. York versus Liverpool drew 1 1. Then Liverpool won 3 1. Peterborough versus Brighton drew 2 2. And then 1 0 to Brighton. Watford versus Bury drew 1 1. And then 3 0 to Watford. I mean, every game apart from the Everton game went to a replay, which mm-hmm. was incredible, uh, I think. Um, I, I don't know if they still go to replays nowadays, but uh, did they still yeah, go yeah, to one, replays? One replay. One replay, yeah. Yeah. But I, I just I just found that really interesting. Uh, Man United, uh, West Ham, that that was one one went to a, a replay, and um, West Ham won two 0 And as we we touched on earlier on, Liverpool beat Everton three 0 three one in the final. Uh, but yeah, it was just the, the amount of replays just really surprised me. Uh, it was everything yeah. apart from the one game. Yeah, I think from memory, Hull City that season went to at least a second replay against Brighton before getting knocked out as well. It's kind of yeah, it seems like nothing happened, does it, in the league? Because the cup replays just have to be played. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can you kind of you kind of understand that why maybe they cap out one replay then straight to penalties because it can get a bit ridiculous time yeah. when these go to like second and third replay games. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially nice. because then the third replay, second replay, whatever, has probably has to be played in a neutral place, and I don't think they. I, I think they take it to a neutral ground, don't they, rather than back and forth. So yeah, it makes sense now. Nowadays, as you say, that it does go to extra time penalties. However, yeah. Uh, all right. So we turn over then to uh, the editor. Uh, it's page seven. So the editor. So there's a, an article, a little wee piece on here, which is quite typical of the magazines from the eighties. Kick up the grass. So again, it's about um, it's about QPR's artificial surface. Uh, I think the artificial pitches at QPR and Luton cropped up a lot. Uh, an article to this era. Uh, an article says Chelsea criticised QPR's plastic pitch in the programme for a recent Milk Cup quarterfinal replay. I'm not saying the artificial surface at Loftus Road is the best of its kind, but the two teams would have found it much easier to play on than the quagmire at Stamford Bridge. Uh, I must say I was surprised by manager John Holland's comments afterwards. He gave no credit to Rangers, saying Chelsea were by far the better side. That aftermatch retort was very much out of character for one of the nicest guys in the game. Do you have any opinion, Nick, on those plastic pitches of that? Uh, I, I remember them, yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I very rarely remember the whole city playing them when I was watching them as a child. I think because I think obviously the plastic pitches of the eighties are very different animals mm-hmm. now yeah. to what the, the surfaces are now. So, and I think the stats must bear out as well. You look at Luton and QPR, and they're massively, massively overachieved, and they're really based on the home form. So they must have got a huge bounce off playing on them pitches. Literally a huge bounce off. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah, I mean, I think you know you you, you hear stories that you about players coming off them with horrible, horrible cuts and stuff. Right? It's just this, it must have been unpleasant to play on, unless, like you say, you can really use it to your home advantage and you can work your tactics around that type of surface. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I think it probably, probably to a degree there's some sour grapes. I think as well from your position in it, because I mean, it's a massive, it's a massive advantage. But nobody's surprised either when they go to Cuba or Luton in the mid eighties. You know what you're going to face from it. So uh, yeah, I'd probably put that down to sour grapes to a degree. But I think yeah. I think we're probably pleased to get rid of them days out of the horrible, horrible surfaces. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we've got them back in Scotland, so unfortunately we're really? running through that. Yeah, there's quite a few teams now in the, the senior leagues that have, have got those. Yeah. Yeah, you see in England as well, down the, down the, kind of in the non-league ranks as well, yeah. that a lot of teams are using them. Because obviously they can become really useful community facilities that you can yeah. use them 24-7 effectively. And I think this Sutton United who kind of stand on the brink of promotion to the Football League and they're using a 4G picture at the moment, which they'll have to rip up if they get promoted to the, yeah. the Football League, like Harrogate Town last year. So, um, yeah, it's tricky, I think, for them clubs, isn't it? And if you can play 
international qualifying matches on them. I don't see why you can't really play football league matches on them at the same time. It seems a bit daft. It's kind of one or the other, isn't it, really? Yeah, I know. I mean, this is, I mean, both Andy and I support uh, Clyde Bank, so we're like a non-league team, and we've recently got a, got a, an artificial pitch, which nobody really is happy about, but the thing about it is, you, you know your game's going to go a, go ahead, and for teams yeah. that are relying on the income, you know, you know you can get your you can get your game on, so you know you're going to get a crowd. You know you're selling your pies, etc. And like you say, it's a community facility as well. So other teams are using it and hiring it as well, kind of thing. You know, so there, there is there is those there is those benefits. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think as well in the eighties, you know, maybe Luton and QPL were right outliers in that sense where they were. Now every team probably trains on a four G pitch, don't they? Midweek, it's not like you're going onto it cold. If you're going to play Clyde Bank on a Saturday, you've trained on that type of surface a yeah. million times. You know exactly what you're facing. It's not. It's not massively different playing on grass in a lot of ways, is it? So, yeah, a lot of clubs at that level train just naturally to train on those kind of pitches. Yeah, exactly. train at high schools or council facilities, kind of thing yeah, during yeah. the week. So yeah, I think it makes total sense for you know clubs at the lower end of the scale to be to be using those and looking to use them really. Just like you say, the financial kind of benefit from doing it if you can afford to put one in or get the grants to do it, it just, it just makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I think I think in a way also. I guess one of the benefits that maybe you don't think about too much is that it forces teams to play uh, to play more football, and um, because they can't do a really physical game on, they can't do their normal physical game on it. You know, they can't throw themselves about. If they do, they're in danger of you know getting a big burn up the legs or whatever like that. So maybe maybe that's one of the benefits that we can we can take from it is that it it does yeah. in, in sort of induce a, a, you know more football than than just physical physical play. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll see the benefits of it now particularly, but I reckon in, like I said, in 10 years' time when the kids are coming through with training on it all the time and using it all the time, then they'll probably come through with technically better players, will they, from, from using these services, I suspect. So, yeah, yeah you know, that, that kind of, say, that physical kind of approach that some teams adopt, particularly down the line of the pyramids, you know, that, that may well sort of start to die out, might it, as, as, as it passes and new players come through are used to handling a football on that surface more like my daughter plays under 10s football and her, her matches are a mixture of grass and 4G just depending on where they're playing so yeah. you know they're quite happy doing either it's not really an issue to them it's just it is what it is yeah. it's normal yeah, so the other wee thing I'm just pointing out on this page is that uh, Burns fan club mm. Colin, Colin Clements 36 Denbury Street Shettleston Glasgow has formed a fan club for Celtic Scotland East Tommy Burns Colin has asked that any interested readers should write to him sending a stamped addressed envelope so firstly, yeah, no. firstly, sorry, I'm just going to jump in because SAE to me has always been self-addressed envelope, mm-hmm. and this, and I've seen this, and it's made me doubt because that makes more sense. Well, it doesn't make more sense; it makes as much sense. So, so what would you say SAE is? I would agree. I think it should say SSAE, shouldn't this mm-hmm. stamped addressed envelope? self-addressed envelope. envelope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be more technically correct, I reckon. Unless this guy's just got stumps of Ben and he's happy to send them back to you. He just wants members of his of his fan club to join in, maybe. Mm. So so Tom, did you did you try and find them? I, I was gonna I, I didn't. I was gonna I yeah. was gonna ask. Well maybe we'll maybe do that afterwards. We'll put it out and see if anybody actually Yeah, I had I had a quick yeah. look because I couldn't the, find anything obvious. Yeah, there's also a little box there for a pen pal as well, isn't it? That's quite interesting. Yeah. A, a guy in South Africa looking for a pen pal. Um I wonder if anybody wrote to him and if he's kind of in touch with them still. Actually, one of the one of the the magazines. I don't know if it was shoot or match or something like that. When I was looking through, so I, I lived down in uh, in Bartley in Yorkshire, and I've lived down in Yorkshire for twenty two years or something. But um, I was looking through just a magazine and looking through the the pen pal section, 
and I saw somebody, and it was in Bartley, and they basically live about 30 seconds away from where I live now, and I, I was really tempted to go around, chatting the door, and say, you still looking for a pen pal, mate? You still looking? Just freak them up. I didn't, I didn't bother in the end. It's a very 80s thing, pen pals, isn't it? You know, that's mm. just something that would... Do people do that anymore? Do kids have pen pals? I'm not really aware that they do anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure. I remember doing it myself when I was at school, and um, it was with somebody from Hobart in Tasmania, and it was a lassie, and, you know, I was I was a shy boy back then, and sent a letter, sent one back, and then she sent a, a letter with a photograph of her, and asked for a photograph of me back and I just I just I just lost, I just freaked out and never spoke to her I've never sent a letter ever again I just like I don't, I don't want to send a letter a, a photograph I don't want to send so that, that was it it was over and done with and that was my pen pal experience uh, right so over the over the page again uh, here so just uh, quickly on that page so there's a couple of the adverts on, on this page uh, so there's an advert here Aston Villa Aston Villa 1986 and uh, the picture is just very simply a picture of uh, Shoot the Breeze favourite Andy Gray. They're posing in the Aston Villa strip with the, with the ball. And it's just a full range of replica kit, free gifts with purchases, free competitions to enter. Send now for our 1986 price list in closing SAE. SAE, there we go. Now, Tom, you'll know what I'm going to say about that photograph. That's the perfect pose. That is the perfect pose. Down on one knee, hand on the ball. The hand in the ball is often missing. It's like they've maybe got, you know, just the hand on the ground. It needs the ball. That's a perfect pose for me. Beside that, there's uh, the, the Bobby Charlton soccer schools. Uh, Nick, were you aware of the Bobby Charlton soccer schools at the, at the time? Yeah, I was. It kind of it rings a bell with me. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I, I certainly didn't go to one. I used to go to kind of football camps in the summer as a kid in Hull and I I have a big memory of it. Maybe even been branded possibly as a Bobby Charlton soccer school in some way, or kind of connected in where to some um, some sort of retired professional. Because I guess in them days it was up in a pub or trying to do something like that. I wanted for a lot of them, them guys. So um, I mean, certainly Bobby Charlton didn't turn up. I think I remember Bobby Charlton turning up, but I think it was. I seem to I seem to recall it was kind of run by some ex league players of the sort of sixties and seventies. You know, names who I'm now with a look back people like Paul Reaney and think you know that was yeah. amazing. Well, at the time, I didn't obviously. I was like ten and eleven. I didn't really appreciate just who them these kind of old men were. We were running it, um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it talks about um, Bob Wilson runs the goalkeeper coaching school as well down in London on behalf of Bobby Charlton. So it's kind of you know, these big kind of like brand names, isn't it? Really, from that era, we're doing these things, and um, I, used to, I used to love football camps. That was brilliant. So the facing page there, we've got uh, my big chance admits Brazil, and there's a good picture there at Alan Brazil and his Scotland kit. So it's um, he's just signed for Coventry, and at the top of the page, there's they've got Ipswich, and there's a wee tick, ball, wee box with a tick in it. Spurs a box with a cross in it. Manchester United a box with a cross in it, and Coventry there's a box with a question mark in it. So it's um, Alan Brazil signing for Coventry and hoping his luck's changed. When Alan Brazil scored a brilliant hat trick for the Manchester United reserves, he had high hopes of a first team recall. Instead, he was sent to Coventry. Well, and just what amused me uh, reading it is it should uh, refer to him as the balding Scott. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say as well. <laughs> oh, the balding Scott, brilliant. Yeah, he's not been bad for himself since, has he? Really? No, he's he's not. He's not really. But he, yeah, he was a great, certainly a great uh, player with Ipswich, and and took his opportunities going to Spurs and Man United. 
yeah, I guess he just kind of fell a little bit short, maybe being that top top echelon played into that yeah. top sort of draw striker. He was a a reasonable kind of face vision striker, but maybe not quite top draw. But it's kind of it's kind of weird to see people like Alan Brazil in this magazine. Isn't it? You know, he's, he's slim, he's athletic looking, apart from the kind of the the old man haircut. But you know, you kind of you know when you see him now, obviously, you know. <laughs> It's got, you know, the passage of time into it, but it seems weird to actually see it put in front of you like this in a, in a sort of a fashion. But um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, yeah, he always, he always, I always remember him being one of them strikers who was pretty good, but not quite good enough at the same time. You know, it was never, like I say, it, it was bombed out of Spurs in Man United, but it, it was good at Ipswich and commentary on it. He was able to kind of hold his own at that level and score, and score plenty of goals. Yeah, it was kind of disappointing for Scotland as, as well. Yeah. Never, never quite, never quite out of um, for Scotland. Yeah, and it's interesting to talk about the reserves as well, because I, I remember watching a lot of Hull City reserve matches around that time as well, when the reserve leagues were kind of very different to what we have now, either they're not the way under 23 development leagues, it was yeah. kind of seasoned old pros, wanted it kind of sulking away around the north of England, playing against empty stadiums, if it seemed like Hull City, because they had no choice but to do it. But um, that was the type of player I used to go and love to go and see, because there were names that you would read about in the magazine. And then they would turn up to play a reserve match. And, you know, I, m- I remember seeing Brian Robson playing for Man United reserves because he was coming back from yet another injury. Um, you know, just, just names like that would be uh, the big clubs. And um, it was a chance to see the type of players that we wouldn't, I wouldn't have seen ordinarily. So yeah, I, I used to love reserve football back when it was kind of like proper reserve football, if you like, in that sense. Yeah, no, I attended a few reserve games as, as well because you used to get that thing. Obviously, the first team were away from home mm. and the reserves would play at home three o'clock on a Saturday, and then it kind of get moved to like a Monday night or something. But yeah, again, you would you get the chance to see players coming back from, from injury, and sometimes you get good crowds. And then the best thing would be if there was a programme. If they knew there would be that good a crowd, you would get a 10 pence programme as well. Uh, I remember being like, I've been able to be the ball boy for some of the games, because there was not many people there. You could just kind of walk down the girl and just kind of say, you're the ball boy, and they'd let you just crack <laughs> on with it. So, that was quite, you know, I remember standing on Bobby Mims in the girl for everything reserved for one match and kind of trying to put him off so he let it go, in, but it didn't really work. Mm. <laughs> so I, th- I think it's a cross goes into the Coventry box, doesn't it? Because he played 15 games and only scored two goals, and then he went to QPR yeah. the same year. So he never spent much time there. So unfortunately... Yeah, Ipswich Town was his was his main main success. Yeah, I, I like I like yeah. Alan Brazil. Um, I, I, it's just a shame that I can't listen to a certain station, but um, because I would I would quite like to listen to him. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I I like him as a as a as a presenter and um, certainly as a footballer. So moving on, pages ten and eleven, we've got Irwin at large. Uh, what's new, Mark Irwin knows. So there's a couple of wee bits and pieces here. And the main bit there is um, Gibson, glad I left Spurs. So it's Terry Gibson, who's Man- signed for Manchester United. Uh, he started his career at Tottenham and uh, £650,000 goal scorer was sold by Spurs to Coventry for just 70000 in 1983. And is convinced that was a turning point of his career. Uh, and this is him just signed for uh, Manchester Manchester United. Competition for places is going to be tougher at United than it was at Spurs, but I regard myself as number one at Old Trafford. Do you remember Terry Gibson? Um, I do, I do, I do. We didn't have a little cash at one point as well, right? Yeah, that's kind of photograph we've got him there. Yeah, again, I kind of follow him a bit alongside people like Alan Brazil has been a decent fetish and striker, but never one who's going to be kind of top draw at the top level of it. I'd, I can't, I can't recall how he did that Man United, but I don't think he kind of set the world alight there, did he really? No, he didn't. No. Um, so I mean, it was kind of one of those kind of like lower half strikers for me. I remember I, I remember him and I remember him being that kind of, sort of small, like stocky type of striker who um, 
would be kind of like sniffing around off a big man type of, type of thing as, yeah. you, as you would have others in those that, that classic partnership type of thing but um yeah you know i mean i think you know there's some big talk from him there in that article isn't it, in that little interview but um i don't think he ever really kind of what the talk for me there and there's a wee bit there it says cluffy's video gift Brian Clough, one of the most outspoken critics of televised soccer, has ordered 12 videos of the BBC's Match of the Day programme, which featured Forrest 3-2 win at Manchester United. I did it for the younger players on my side, like Greg Fleming, Des Walker, Brett Williams, my lad Nigel and Franz Carr. I don't know whether any of them has a long-term future in the game, but they deserve a memento of the United match and the part they played in our win. It's quite quaint there, getting them a video of the game so they can see. Yeah, it is, and it's just looking at those names, isn't it, as well? You know, when he says, I'm not sure if these lads have got a future in the game, and you see Des Walker, yeah. my lad Nigel and Franz Kai, you know, they, think that they all have blinkeries, didn't they? But then you think Greg Fleming, Brett Williams, the names I can kind of vaguely recall somewhere in the back of my mind, but I couldn't kind of tell you anything about them. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see kind of uh, where, where those kind of like lads fell really want it. And... Um, yeah, some of those players went on to a brilliant, brilliant degrees, and particularly Des Walker, I suppose you'd have yeah. to point out there. Um, but yeah, video is a gift. That's quite an interesting thing, isn't it, these days? Mm, I think it ages, it, doesn't it? it? It's of mm. its time. You know, looking back now, if, if, you know, youngsters read that, they wouldn't believe that, you know, it, that would be a gift. So, well, just go to YouTube or something and you'll be able to see yeah, it again. Yeah. But no, they, they had to, Brian Clough had to probably go to the BBC department and ask them for, for 10 videos of it. I don't even specify whether it's VHS or Betamax either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a wee bit there about Steve Hodge. Hodge, I can follow Robson. Uh, Steve Hodge's inclusion in the England squad for last month's game in Israel has encouraged him to believe he can keep his place for Mexico. So like you said earlier, Nick, he, he, mm, he did. He did. That's right, he did, didn't he? And I, I always like Steve Hodge as a footballer. I think it's that it's that kind of thing about left footers, isn't it? You know, that there's always, they always seem to have that light. Slightly more cultured edge of the game, but we we think they have, don't we? With you know these left footers and um, yeah, I mean Steve Hodge, what is he? He's twenty three, I think it says in the article there, don't it? He's a, he's a relative youngster, and um, yeah, I mean he goes on to have a brilliant career, doesn't he? Really, just Steve Hodge, and um, yeah, he played his part in Mexico for England, you know. So I think is um, you know that that's a little glimpse into the next six months there, that little piece. Yeah, uh, it's been a bit there about Gary Lineker, Everton striker Gary Lineker. Gary aims to join the greats. Uh, he's still waiting to score his first great goal. I've never hit a shot from 30 yards out, which thunders at the top corner. All my goals come from inside the penalty box, confesses Gary. My style of finishing is also changing. My speciality at Leicester was running onto the through ball and striking at home with Everton. I am scoring a lot more headers. Yeah, I don't really remember a score, you know, particularly for his aerial prowess, particularly because he's quite he's a relatively short man, isn't he? As well, I think he's Gary. He's not a six foot two strapping striker, is he? Yeah. But, um, yeah, then, then when you talked about running onto through balls and finishing, them of the goals you think that was Gary Lineker, right? That just that calmness in the box, and it's just that ability to kind of pick a spot and not rush it, and just have some composure, which is um, incredibly rare, isn't it? As it, for, even for strikers at that level. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of interesting to see that piece where he's kind of on the cusp of greatness, isn't it? Really, you know, we're about mm-hmm. to go to Mexico '86, and he's going to win the Golden Boot, he's going to move to Barcelona. But yeah, I mean, even, even in the FA Cup final, he scores, he scores a typical Lineker goal, doesn't it? Remember, he's a couple of fights at the cherry when he's kind of tussling with the defender and he's trying to get the better of the goalkeeper, but it's kind of classic Lineker at the same time. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting piece to see him just kind of on the cusp of greatness, really. Yeah. I wonder I wonder about if, um, because the season before was Graham Sharp and Andy Gray, and, mm. you know, so Everton were geared towards that sort of style of, you know, putting the ball into the box, you know, for the header. So maybe... Rather than playing to his game, he's played to their game. 
So maybe that's how he's he's ended up scoring more headers just because of the style of play. Um, yeah, had more of that in it. Yeah, I mean, is that move? I mean, I'm obviously moving to a team at the top end of the table as opposed to Leicester, who kind of like bottom half of the table, weren't they around that time? I would assume it's uh, yeah, the space you're running behind wouldn't, wouldn't be quite as clear cut, would it? Because teams will defend that a little bit deeper against you, especially as Lineker was always a, a pacey striker, wasn't he, as well? So they would kind of compress the space. So, yeah, you know, I always like the way that he did kind of adapt his game and, and, and kind of add new things to it. And, um, He's right though, isn't he? I can't think of a single shot that's gone off from. You know, they're all kind of um, classic um, penalty box strikes, aren't they? Really, he just um, you know, like the one against um, West Germany in the nineteen ninety World Cup semi final. It's like kind of getting your shot off early into it, just one touch, getting a control and bang across the goalkeeper, low and hard into the bottom corner. It's it's textbook stuff, isn't it, from him? And um, you know, that, that's kind of that's how I think of him. You know, it's that textbook finishing, really. Yeah, yeah, he's a same way as like that. Think about Jimmy Greaves, you know, he was not a, mm. a great, a, not a scorer of great goals, but a great goal scorer. Yeah, yeah. And as, as I tell my daughter all the time when she's playing football, they all count for one, don't they? It doesn't matter if it's a 30 yard screamer off, you're tapping it from two yards, it comes for one. So, um, you know, he, he was superb, superb striker. Yeah, he really was. So, a couple of other wee bits uh, there. Former Celtic and Scotland star Tommy Gemmell is taking over one of the toughest jobs in British football, manager of Albion Rovers, who are stranded at the foot of the second, the Scottish second division. And uh, Hibs lash out. Hibs who have spent £500,000 on their Easter Road Stadium in the last two years are to spend a further half million on improving facilities. Once we have finished, our stadium will be all covered and with a 35000 old seated capacity. The biggest outside Glasgow, says Chairman Kenny Wall. Andy, do you know, did they, did they do that? That sounds like a big capacity for Easter Road. I don't think the capacity is 35,000. Um, no, it's 16 or something now. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know about that, if, how much went on. But then again, you know how many times have we seen Dumbarton were going to pump in <laughs> 200,000 for a new stadium and stand and it never happened. So I'm, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, all right, so over the, over the page again. No, so, no, I'm not letting you go. There's a oh, cartoon. Oh, there's a cartoon. There's a cartoon. And <laughs> I have no idea what it's about. No, this is a particular poor cartoon, I think. Oi, uh, trainer, treat him somewhere else. I can't read the half times if you lean him there. I, I, yeah, it's because, isn't it? Do you remember in the mid, probably around this time before we had proper electronic scoreboards, they used to kind of sometimes a bit behind the goal almost kind of running against the boards where you would put letters down the score yeah. against them and the letters would correspond to the programme wouldn't it so you look like match day would be Arsenal versus Tottenham or whatever and you kind of pick the score up that way but so maybe the injured players lying in front of them board that would show the score mm. possibly yeah, yeah. It's, it's not I a great joke it's not a great joke if, if it needs that much an explanation <laughs> and I'm still I'm still a bit confused then I, I don't think it's it's no it's not a great joke at all no okay Tom that's me alright it's off my chest so uh, over the over the page then, so we'll get, we'll get a two-page spread of um, the England team, Bobby's Road to Mexico. So this is uh, Bobby Robson here is sitting on top of a camel. Um, looks to be looks to be enjoying himself. <laughs> uh, decked out in a sort of purple England trackie. I think it's a sort of light blue, dark blue, isn't it? I would think so, yeah. I think it's the photograph, isn't it? Surely it's blue rather than purple. Surely. It's purple. Uh, <laughs> and there's a picture of the England squad there in front of uh, front of the pyramids. Uh, England line up in front of the Sphinx and pyramids of Cairo. Uh, so, the, the, uh, yeah. Sorry, just the only thing I'd say about is I can see blue in the picture. So so the guy, is the, the camel herder, has a blue collar on. Right. So, so maybe mm. it's purple. 
Maybe it's just one. Maybe it was like that Rangers top where you washed it and it, and it went up. <laughs> so maybe that's what that was. Uh, it's quite a good picture of the England, the England squad there. They're all in their sort of casual clothes, all in sort of Nike uh, t-shirts. Or um, some of them have got jumper. Look, Trevor Stevens wearing a kind of a sort of cricketing style jumper. Yeah, yeah. Blue, like a or rebel or something. It looks like a, a York, like an old uh, York City kit or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. It's yeah. A really big but yeah, no, it's quite a nice picture. They've all got the sort of casual gear on. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you took that photograph today, then the players would all be looking exactly the same, wouldn't they? They'd be in the identical sports training gear, wouldn't they? And every brand name would be right front and centre, wouldn't it? So, yeah. you get, so they get the sort of bang for the book type of thing where this is looked like it's uh, just like a collection of men in the 20s and 30s who've been hanging out in the <laughs> really. Yeah. You wouldn't think it was in this national football squad looking at them, would you, really? It's just like a load of blokes. I'm going to say seeing almost. To be fair, it, it, lo- it looks like a, a team that are celebrating a 20-year anniversary of mm. know, of retiring or something like that. You know, it's yeah. like, they, they do look as though they've stopped playing. Yeah, it don't look like football is at the, at the peak of the powers, is it, really? Athletes who should be... Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the mid-20s, they were kind of, you know, up for it and everything. They just look like uh, a bunch of tourists with their dads on the end. Yeah, nice picture. I like it, you know, sort of... It is very, very 80s, but, you know, kind of also stuff quite timeless. Yeah, yeah. Peter Pillar Peter Shilton there with his sunglasses on it as well, I think. Yeah. He's the only one wearing sunglasses, isn't he? Yeah. There's somebody at the, the front there, one of the coaches or physios or whatever it is. He's got sunglasses on. Yeah. Gordon Cowes looks like he's got two layers on. Looks like I, I shot my jumper. <laughs> yeah, looks like Mark Hill is wearing a big, big woolen jumper or something, isn't he, as well, which uh, I don't know the occasion for it particularly. Nice. Okay. <laughs> So we go over the over the page again. Uh, so on the right here, we've got Cluffy speaking his mind. I don't think he really says anything too controversial in this uh, in this column. My Chelsea clanger. Uh, so um, he not so long ago, I was talking about the English first division championship and said that three teams were capable of winning it: Liverpool, Everton, and Manchester United. I was aware of dismissing the Cockney challenge but Big Head might just have been wrong. For the more I see of Chelsea, the more I think they're capable of having their say in me. Um, ah, so he just talk, he talks up Chelsea a wee bit, David Speedy, Pat Nevin, and uh, the other wee piece there is um, open to offers. Uh, so he's said that he would be willing to listen to offers for Gary Burroughs, Peter Davenport, and again, my lad, Nigel. And uh, I, can't, I can't understand what all the fuss was about. Yeah, it's almost like he's trying to sell his place through the magazine, isn't it? Almost. He's kind of saying they're not for sale, but they are for sale. Uh, I guess it's kind of before uh, pre-internet days, isn't it? Maybe it's just a way of kind of getting out there into the public forums. I don't know. Yeah, but, um, yeah I don't know if it was Gilch written that column or not, or whether it's kind of, it has come from Cluffy's mouth, but he's almost becoming like a parody of himself, isn't he, with his language, I think, there. It's kind yeah. of, um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, at that stage, he's kind of past his peak into the manager, really, and he's kind of starting to slow decline that, to the end for him, I think, as a, as a, as a manager. So, yeah, I didn't, you know, I think you just have to set that with a pinch of salt and that, that that column there, don't you? Really, but yeah. uh, it's always good to hear from him. I think I yeah. think it's probably quite a an easy tool to use, isn't it? If you are ghostwriting it, just to throw in mm. the big head yeah. and things like that, and you know, suddenly it it's like I mean, to be honest, reading it myself, I hear cluffy. Yeah, when, yeah. when when that when you read that bit, and then after it, everything else becomes cluffy because. You, because of that first bit, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the photos are black and white, so you don't really get the best of it, but um, it's not a bad Nottingham Forest shirt, that. 
so it's a red yeah. shirt with such um, shadows, of pinstripes going out, going um, horizontal, and there's three forest badges in the centre of the shirt. The Adidas logos on the sleeve, and it's a skull sponsor. Not not the kind of not not a forest shirt you would think of immediately, but I think it's quite a smart one. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's probably a peak era, wasn't it? Maybe the dates for football kits. There's an awful lot of really smart looking kits, yeah, yeah. weren't they, in that area? I'm thinking West Ham as well, in that sort of period, had a really nice kit. Um, the Arsenal one was kind of simple but effective as well. You know, I think it was a really nice time for football kits in the 80s. Maybe that's kind of looking back a bit now into that kind of casual wear. But um, yeah, I think 80s kits were well smart. I think it's Stuart Pearce in that photo, isn't it? He was always one of the first players. I think John Brown um, at Rangers were. They put the tape around their socks in a different colour. That that always one of the first players that I remember seeing doing that. Oh, that is good knowledge. That is good knowledge. Yeah, because I'm looking at. I mean, David Speedy's got. I think he's got tape as well, isn't he? Then when you look closely, possibly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you look on the on the page there, and you've got Paul Allen on the other side in his Tottenham kit, which also is another another nice shirt, I think. Yeah, it was there's, a nice there's, there's, there's no. Uh, he's not wearing tape either, is he? So yeah, maybe that was a pioneering thing at Forest mm. and, and through Stuart Pearce. Yeah, I think uh, maybe. Um, John Robertson did it as well at Forest. Yeah. Ah. So maybe it was a Forest thing. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Brian Clough told him it had special powers or something. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you would do, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so page 17, uh, which is uh, just Jim. So this is the letters page with uh, Jimmy Greaves. So let's pick out a, cu- a couple of them there. So a letter from Julie Dell of Catford, London. Uh, it's headline Dixon Joke. I'd like to thank Chelsea chairman Ken Bates for giving me such a good laugh. Five million pounds for Kerry Dixon? He has got to be joking. And Jim says, you should know by now that Ken Bates never makes jokes. Kerry Dixon is not for sale, and this is simply Chelsea's way of letting everyone know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, five million pounds wouldn't buy you a turnover of a decent strike these days, <laughs> would it? So that's, uh, yeah, I think the main thing about that page was it was, it kind of, I felt quite sad looking at you know Jimmy Greaves' face because I made me think straight away of, of Saint and Greavesy in those sort of Saturday lunchtime. Yeah. Um, he wins when I used to watch him at my grandma's house before I was going to watch Full City play. But yeah, I always thought Jimmy would be the first one to go, and obviously it was Saint, wasn't it? Not long ago. So yeah, you know, they kind of reminded me, you know, just how long ago we're looking back when I was reading yeah, them. I and mean, you know, I felt incredibly kind of sad about you know that you know Jimmy's probably not going to last that much longer. I suspect, is he? You know, he's not in good health, but. Um, what a partnership they were when they did the TV programme. And um, I think, you know, they like was talking about Brian Clough's voice on the previous page, and I think Greaves' voice comes across on this as well, doesn't it? As that kind of uh, kind of jovial dismissal of, of points, doesn't he, on this page, and it kind of works. You can hear him sort of talking, I think, in that sense. Uh, and there's, there's a wee bit there again, Gary Lineker again, um, uh, a letter from Keith Warhurst in North Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And it says, after watching the big match live featuring Chelsea and Liverpool, I have to agree with Gary Lineker. We should have two substitutes per team. And Jimmy says, this proposal has already been discussed at a very high level and it's only a matter of time before it's adopted by the Football League. I'd go even further. I'd make it three subs, but one must be a goalkeeper. You can only come on if the first choice keeper is genuinely injured. And interesting, Gary Lineker seems to be sort of forward thinking at that time as well. Yeah, and, and so does Greaves. He doesn't say, you know, I think it was, it was maybe only a couple of years after that one where three subs did come in, including one of the goal, one being the goalkeeper. So, yeah. yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, see, they were they were kind of ahead of the time on that one. And um, I've lost track of where we are now. Is it about seven substitutes <laughs> at the moment? It's a, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? So, yeah, I think the FA Cup final the other day it was five subs you could you could put yeah. on. Yeah, so I wonder what Keith from Northampton would make of that if he could uh, <laughs> if he could go back and see his left there wherever he wants 
of most of. It's not. It's not very often I agree with uh, Jimmy Greaves. I, right. I, I'm with him on that one. The subs, absolutely. Uh, good time, Charlie. Samuel McFadden of Dundonald and Belfast says, thank goodness, Charlie Nicholas is finally starting to produce the goods for Arsenal. Now we'll see what all the fuss was about when he left Celtic three years ago. And uh, Jimmy says, Charlie was a potentially great player when he left Celtic and it looks as though he's finally starting to fulfil some of that early promise. He's making headlines for all the right reasons and playing the football we all suspected he was capable of. I'm delighted for Charlie, for Arsenal and for football in general because we can never have too many crowd pleasers. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? You know, he's saying an awful <laughs> lot there in, in a few words, isn't he, about making headlines for the right reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my perception of, of, of Charlie Nicholas was that he was very much a playboy when he came to came down south and, you know, maybe coming to London, maybe want the smartest move in that sense, you know, into the bright lights of the big city. Um, and I don't remember him that much as a footballer, to be honest. Um, again, because I think... 85-86 was the season of the blackout, wasn't it, on TV? Where, right, yeah. Yeah, nothing was shown, wasn't it, until was it kind of well into autumn. So um, I didn't see an awful lot of sort of first vision football being played at that stage, really. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm guessing it's probably fair to say he never really fulfilled his potential, really. I Certainly didn't in England, I think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think he had the, the chance to move to Liverpool, and I think that's something he says he's regretted, that he didn't mm-hmm. take that chance. And... You know, I, I think it's it's pretty well um, thought that moving to London probably wasn't the best idea for him, you know, and I don't think it took hindsight to work that out. Uh, but he, he was a terrific player, absolutely. You know, one of the most naturally mm. talented players that Scotland had produced at any time, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think Celtic get the best out of him in his, his early years, but other than that, Scotland's never really got the you know the, the player that we kind of expected in the national team kind of thing, and he didn't really do didn't really do it for Arsenal. Although that being said, I think all the fans loved him, and I, I think he's still very popular with, with Arsenal supporters. And then he came up here and did quite well for Aberdeen, and then got back got back to Celtic. And I think the Celtic fans seem to be a bit kind of lukewarm about him, Andy. I yeah, that. I think I think a lot of that's the after the his career. Yeah, is because of that. Um, but you know, you know me. I'm a fan of Charlie Nicholas. I always have to qualify that by putting Nicholas on the end of Charlie. <laughs> uh, anything else you spotted there, either either of you? I'm going to have to look at the sounding off. It's it's again, it's of its time. It says, I you know I was critical of England's game in Egypt and still believe that all we learned from the trip was that Egypt have a goalkeeper who looks and plays like President Nasser, and it's just like it's. You know, it's it's borderline, isn't it? Here's here's somebody with dark skin and a moustache. It looks like somebody else with dark skin and a moustache. Yeah, borderline. yeah. It's of its time, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not good, is it? Really, it's not good. But then I think that attitude was a lot of minor footballing countries wanted that kind of patronising turn that we're England and we expect to kind of just turn up and, and win these games. And um, I think around that time the tide was starting to turn a bit, wasn't it? They were still handing out. Pumpings here and there, but a lot of these smaller countries were slowly starting to improve. And um, you, know, you get to Mexico in '86, and England only managed to draw in Morocco, don't they? It's uh, mm. you know, it's, it's probably the start of maybe we'll talk about that. About countries having their own styles till in '86 before kind of globalization really kind of throws everything into the mix and into a pot of kind of producing a kind of one style of football almost. But yeah, I think that you know, that's probably the start of England's decline to a degree. A modern decline, a second decline, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we go over the page then, uh, Andy. So we're at uh, shoot 
book and video service. I'm going to have a wee look at there. So, so it's just basically a list of uh, a list of football books, uh, including United I Stand by Brian Robson, United to Win, Ron Atkinson, um, a book called Simply Arsenal, Bill Nicholson's Glory, Glory, My Life with Spurs. So, uh, aye, so it's just a, a list of books ranging in prices from about three ninety five to fifteen pounds. And also a list of videos, VHS and beta. And if you look at the price of the videos, £24.50 for Kickoff Europe, 1872 and 1968, 60 minutes. £26.50 for Espana, 82. Yeah. Now, imagine that in that time, 1986, £26.50. Yeah, I think even the books are expensive, aren't they? Really, you know, you, you probably expect to pay. I mean, I've got your inside soccer, Tony Woodcock, nine ninety five. That's kind of like the price you'd pay if you're walking into Waterstones tomorrow and bought a book, isn't it, really? So, yeah. um, you know, it does, the books and videos do seem very expensive for 1986, but um, yeah, you'd have to be a massive fan of um, the Spanish 82 World Cup only to pay £26.50 for a video of it. Yeah, 60 minutes is, yeah. as well. I think, what you, I think what you would do back then is you and your mates who want a copy yeah. of it would mix in, get the one copy, Get the two video machines together and get taping. That's exactly. what you would do. Yeah, you would absolutely copy that until there was no more video on it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what we're talking about, this this magazine's 40 pence, did we say? Mm, yeah. 40p. So, I mean, if you look at that, that's what, a year and a half worth of subscription or or, some, or maybe more. I'm, I'm trying to do the, the, the math in my head there, but um, I'm just going to say that and we'll, we'll correct it if it's a way out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, top end pocket money for somebody buying shoot at that time, a, f- a fiver, absolute top end. I would be getting maybe a pound, pound fifty. But imagine saving up for a video on that twenty six pounds fifty. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying, um, I'm trying to imagine persuading my parents to buy me a video at twenty six pounds fifty. They'd laugh me out the door. And so I was like, I had a wee look on YouTube, and of course you can you can basically find all these on on YouTube mm. now. Have you got the wee screenshot? There we go. So there's yeah. a screenshot from the final farewell to Trevor Brooken uh, video. And so that's a picture of uh, Trevor uh, Brooken being raised shoulder high by uh, the fans at uh, Upton Park. But what I liked about it there was it was the final farewell to Trevor Brooken. The um, on screen, it looks like I don't know what, what what those things were that you got. I remember using them at college. The wee things that you would use to put captions on on uh, on on videotape. It just looks really cheap. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It looks about like on the spectrum forty eight k. Yeah. So. But what a shirt he's wearing! That, that uh, another great kit from that sort of area. That West Ham shirt that is beautiful. With the, with the kind of the sections and everything, and, and the and the claret and the blue sort of in like little boxes. It's great. Yeah, the hammers, the, the, the hammers. Yeah. On, on yeah, the yeah. Badge, yeah. And there's a hint that it's back to the top would be quite nice as well, although it's kind of half off, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Trevor, yeah, I mean, I don't remember Trevor Booking as a player because obviously, I guess, you know, that, that kind of, he was retiring at that stage once, so he's not somebody I would have any memories of as a, as a player, particularly mm-hmm. other than them grainy clips you see of him scoring in the FA Cup final. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's, he's not particularly popular around these parts because when when the Kirkham Stadium in Hull was being built, he wanted to kind of cap the capacity much smaller in, um, in terms of being able to offer funding for it, and he was proved completely wrong. So, mm. yes. good evening to you, Trevor, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> right, Andy, where, where are we going? Where are we going now? So, the, this, so this issue has got two t- team groups. Uh, this is a spotlight, uh, double-page spread, spotlight on Luton Town. Now, 
Andy, so you're the sort of king of the, the, the team group formations. What do you make of this? So it's it's not your, your usual team formation. Uh, you, you know, you would normally get two lines, three lines, all nice and neat. So this one is along the side of the pitch with the team and then the coaches sort of coming. So it's, it's sort of like a bit of an L shape. Um, and, but they're also standing sort of a diagonal to each other. But I, I like I like when they try something a bit different. I like I, I think that sort of works. You know, I, it's unusual. They've tried something a bit different. I mean, we we can go back to my, one of my favourites being the Queen's Park one, where they're, they're side on and a lot closer than those are to each other. And I just think that that's wonderful. Um, so yes, yeah, the the Luton Town kit historically, I always found find that the Luton Town kits are some of the better kits. You know, certain teams just do kits really well. I think Luton Town is one. Crystal Palace was another, um, and I just think that's a really really smart kit there as well. I love the 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 socks, the top of the socks, like the tangerine and black round the top there as well. But everything else, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a fan of that. What do you think yourself, Nick? Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. I didn't really kind of... I, I remember opening it a couple of days ago thinking that is, you know, it's weird, isn't it, to see him in a line like that. It's not what you expect, but it does work. It's kind of... Uh, it makes him seem quite imposing as well, doesn't it? Because I stood up and staring at the camera and... Uh, yeah, I, I like it. I like it. Um, but I guess that's kind of Luton Town, isn't it? You know, they had to do things a little bit differently to survive at that level of football yeah. for so long. And um, yeah, that kind of thinking, I guess, kind of infuses itself in all sorts of different ways. And... Um, yeah, that's an example of it. But um, yeah, it's a great kit and it's uh, it's a great story as well about David Pleat and his um, his wheeler dealings and um, the the players who will kind of break into the England squad. But I don't think any of them actually managed to make it to Mexico, did they? None of those players mm-hmm. mentioned, like Ricky Hill and um, uh, Brian Steen. None of them kind of break through. But then I guess what we're talking the following year, they go and win the League Cup. Yeah, possibly into it, yeah against Arsenal. So yeah, yeah, a, a know, lot of good lot of good players in that absolutely, uh, yeah, that yeah. lineup. Uh, Mitchell Thomas, Mick Harford, Paul Elliott, Steve Foster, uh, Ashley Grimes, Andy Dibble, Les Seeley, Mal Donaghy, R- Ricky Hill, uh, Brian Steen, Peter Nicholas, Mark Steen. Uh, a lot of guys who obviously moved on to other moved on to other clubs. Yeah, I guess that was the way they had to do it, wasn't it? To kind of get that international recognition. Um, you know, it's always been the way, aren't it? If you play for a team like Luton Town, you're never going to get a cap for England, probably. But if you move on, you give yourself a chance, don't you? But... Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of it's they're kind of a quintessential mid eighties team, aren't they? You know, they're one of those teams who were just um, kind of greater than the sum of its parts, I suppose, weren't they? In that sense, and um, yeah, maybe having that plastic pitch was obviously a, a huge advantage to them. But um, you know, I think you know you have to give David Pitt a lot of credit as well for the way that that team was run over a number of years. Hmm. So just um, I did check that Mick Hartford was the only one who got near. He was on the standby list yeah. for the Mexico eighty six, but he obviously wasn't wasn't um, called up for that. What a terrible! Imagine, imagine letting Mick Harford loose on international football. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrifying man! There's a, there's a very strange sentence in this, and if I can pick it out, it says if Bobby Robson could pick three teams for the World Cup finals, Steve Foster would clearly be the centre half berth in one of them. And I just think that's a really strange thing to say. You know, it's like it's, yeah. if he if he if he could pick five teams. Steve Foster would be a one of them. If he could pick a hundred teams, yeah. it's like, well, why three? Why can they not be in the yeah, second eleven? 
Yeah, maybe this maybe the writer thought of four better centre backs. They thought best go to a third team. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously the England B was probably a thing around that time, I guess, wasn't it? Them sort of B teams at international level, but um, yeah, yeah. If you can't break into the B team, I mean, there's, there's nothing after that, is there? It's a straight. They say it's a strange thing to say, and um, yeah, I mean, I think Steve Foster, like like we talked about Alan Brazil earlier, and, and Terry Gibson, he's a he was a fantastic Division One centre back, wasn't he? But you know, I don't think he was ever going to be really an international pedigree centre back at the same time, was he? He was kind of other level, I think, was that type of defender. Yeah, I think you get that so often, where, where yeah. you know you get a good defender, a good player for a team, and and they're, they're really good, and the the fans of that team saying he should get an England cap, he should get a Scotland cap or something, but you know, really, it's a different level they're playing at. It might be playing out of their skin, but. Quite often, when they if they do get a chance, they just don't shine at all. And I'm not saying that's always the case, but you know, I think yeah, you're right with Steve Foster there. It's like he did brilliantly for for Luton Town, but he was never really going to displace any of the the players in in the squad, was he? No, no. You think people like Steve Bruce never got an international cap did they, for mm. England? So you know, people like Steve Foster, they're kind of a notch below that, aren't they? Really. So I mean, he's a fantastic defender of of his era, isn't he? But he's never going to be. Boarding the plane to Mexico, I don't think that was probably a little bit fanciful. Yeah. Unless England, unless England sent three teams to the world, but possibly <laughs> didn't. Uh... So, so also, Tom, I'm going to pick out. So you mentioned that they beat Southampton seven 0 and hey. I know I've mentioned a few times that Southampton have taken a couple, a few beatings. So I looked up some of their beatings. 1972 versus Leeds United got beat seven 0 1995 against Man United got beat nine 0 2019 versus Leicester City got beat nine 0 Southampton really have had a few thumpings mm-hmm. in the past. They really have. So there's another one to add to it, uh, Luton Town. So, right, so Andy, where are we moving on to now? Uh, so here we go. So we're, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit here. So we're going to the, the main event now, uh, Nick. So this is, it. This is the whole <laughs> These are my boys. These are my boys. So if you just want to take it away, then, then I can take us through this uh, whole city team. Well, this is this is yeah. This was uh, my my heart was beating when I saw this picture when I opened <laughs> it up. I mean, look at look at that kit. That is a beautiful kit to start with, isn't it? It's um, yeah. So it's Hull City eighty five eighty six. Uh, it's it was. I actually started going to watch Hull City the season before eighty four eighty five, and it was a promotion season. So I guess that kind of makes me some kind of glory supporter of Hull City. <laughs> um, so this. Uh, so yeah, my first match was a nil nil draw. So I guess that kind of cancels out a bit. But um, yeah, so this picture shows a squad. Division 2, 85-86, it's mainly the team that I've got promoted the year before. Yeah, you look at it, and there's not too many players that I suspect a lot of people would recognise, particularly. No. But, you know, if, you, if you're a Hull City fan, then those are iconic names. You know, you've got Gareth Roberts, captain next to the, the player manager, Brian Hall, and he played sort of like 400 games for the club. Tony Norman, the goalkeeper, who had... If you, had, he, if you didn't have the misfortune of Neville Southall in front of him... And, in front of him for the Wales goalkeeping job. He would have played international football for a decade for Wales without doubt. You know, he's, he, he should have played a lot higher than Division 2 football. Um, Pete Skipper and Stan McEwen in the middle row, the centre-back partnership, both played hundreds of games for the club. Um, you know, it's just, there's so many stalwarts of the club on there, it's incredible. And um, the one man staring at the camera in the middle of the photograph, looking like he might actually kill somebody, Billy Whitehurst, the hardest man in football, as he was known. Um <laughs> The, the club star man, the striker, the sole partway through the season for, I think, the article says £240,000 to Newcastle United. Um, you know, what a story Big Billy's got sort of tell of his, of his career. Um, you know, that, that was the first team I went to watch. It was, you know, that, those were the players that I remember watching as a, as a 10 and 11-year-old. And um, 
I used to sit in the seats behind where that figure was taken in the south stand. You know, that was just kind of my first memories of watching football is watching that team and, and owning that kit as well, um, the full strip. So, yeah, so many happy memories of that figure. And I think in typical Hull City fashion, the club finished sixth that season in, in Division Two. And the playoffs were brought in the following season. So we missed out on a playoff shot to the to the first division at that time because of the, the rules change coming in the following year, which is kind of typical whole city, I think, really. It's, uh, yeah, good times, good times. Andy, have we got a look at some of the results from the... Yeah, just, just before we do, I'd, I'd just like to mention Lodge Pearson at the back there, who we spoke about when the last time we spoke about um, Hull City. So um, we used to play five asides together, or seven asides down at really? Westfield. Yeah, brilliant. He's, he doesn't have um, anywhere near his amount, the same amount of hair in his head as he does there. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's nice to see him in there. And I also say that Andy yeah. Flounders in the back left there has got a bit of a Gordon Cowan look to him. Yeah, yeah, he was a striker, Andy Flounders, a local lad. Um, kind of, yeah, kind of came from nowhere, really, and just came through the ranks and um, stuck at it and, and won his place in this team and uh, was a decent striker for the club and spent the rest of his career sort of kicking around for Scunthorpe United and North Arabia in the non-league ranks. Uh, but, yeah, it's interesting you say that you played against Laurie Pearson because I played against um, Peter Skipper, who was the guy who was third left in the middle row, uh, and he was, he was a centre-back for the team back then and... Um, He's no longer with us, unfortunately. He died last year, did Pete Skipper. Right. Um, and he played amateur football kind of until his death, essentially. He was turning out for the, the whole city um, old boys teams. But I came across him probably around the end of the 90s. So I was probably in my mid-20s and it was an amateur league match. So Pete Skipper would have probably been, I would guess, pushing towards 40. And I thought, you know, I'm going to show the old man how it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how I tend to be to show a 40-year-old man how you play football. And I didn't get, <laughs> I didn't get a single kick of him all game. You know, the, the, the difference in levels is just absolutely incredible. Into You kind of watch these players thinking, God, how have you been professional? Mm-hmm. And then you come up against one of them and uh, with a ball at your feet and you just can't get anywhere near them. Um, so, you know, that was, you know, that was kind of, I look back with kind of great fondness of playing against the likes of Pete Skipper on the amateur pitch. And, um, there's a couple of the lads on that picture who were playing for the same team. It was almost cheating, really, isn't it? You haven't got a chance of getting close to them. But, um, yeah, yeah, incredible play against some of those guys and be uh, completely schooled. Just before we move on, Tom, I just want to mention the socks. I'm, 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 I love yeah. those socks. They're, they're very rugby-like socks. I don't know if the the whole uh, rugby team wears something similar to that, but no, it was it was um, the chairman at the time, Don Robinson, was um, it was kind of it was one of these guys who was ahead of his of his era. Really, he he would talk about whole system being the first couple of on the moon. Uh, he would have all these these kind of crazy crazy schemes to kind of raise awareness of the team and raise money. And they played played against some American teams in a, in and kind of, I think they called it the Anglo American Air Trophy, something ridiculous. And we played Tampa Bay Rowdies over two legs. Um, and there's some amazing footage of it on YouTube because whole city fan Mark Herman went to film it and you know Mark has gone on to write um, Brassed Off and direct Brassed Off. Strike pajamas. You know, it was he was kind of cutting his teeth because he was a whole city fan. He went out with a club to film them in Florida and there's some amazing footage of them uh-huh. kind of um, doing things they shouldn't be doing in Florida on YouTube. Um, and as part of the chairman's whole kind of rebranding of the club after he took it on was he introduced red to the kit for the first time. But you can see like a very faint red stripe, I think, in the shirt as well, if you look right, closely, yeah. um, as well as on the sock. And uh, there's various stories as to why that is there. But I think the story used to be that he said it was to represent the club that the players would shed running through the running, sort of running through doors for the club. Um, but it was also talk. It was it was from Scarborough, which was kind of close connected to the Scarborough football club. So it could be to do with that. Uh, and there was just a suggestion that it was very popular at the time in Watford and 
um, Liverpool being the dominating teams that um, he just wanted a bit of red in the kit because it was associated with a successful team. But yeah, it does look a little bit strange. And I've not had red in the kit since those days, really. It's just mm. back to the classic black and amber. Oh, this, this is what I mentioned um, in a podcast recently, Tom, wasn't it? I, I love those Watford colours, the, the black, red and, yeah. and yellow. And yeah, that's probably why I'm, I'm drawn to the socks. Yeah, they are, they are brilliant socks. Yeah, yeah. Can we have a look at some of the stats we've pulled out? So uh, so that's some of the, the players there. So that's the players from the 85-86 season. Billy Askew, Stephen Brentano. Uh, so that's just the, the appearances we've pulled out uh, there. And uh, we get a list of the results from that season. And I don't know if you can... See that well, Nick. If you can pick out any, yeah, I think from the from the slide you showed me with the goal scorers and the appearances, the the amazing one there is Stan McEwen. I think he's, he's got ten goals from about forty appearances in his centre back. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a penalty taker and the free kick taker. And I can just kind of I still kind of picture him just literally. He had that kind of like Stuart Pearce approach to free kicks where he would just run up and absolutely just leather into the top <laughs> corner. Um, but ten well, goals. It, it gives you it gives you the penalties there. So it's five penalty kicks. Five penalties, right? Okay, yeah. So that's I mean. One in four from your centre back's not bad going, is it? So that's one that stands out to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised to see Andy Flanders has got, got ten in twenty because he was kind of the third pro striker really, um, behind Big Billy before he left and um, Frankie Bunn. Um, Frankie Bunn went on to score six in one game for Oldham a couple of years later. If you remember that one in the League Cup, um, I think that was against Scarborough. So yeah, yeah, he was kind of like the kind of the team at the time was Frankie Bunn. Yeah, so yeah, there's not a great distribution of goals there, is it really? It's kind of mainly within the strikers, I think. Plus you one freakish centre-back who was knocking in double figures for you. <laughs> and I, uh, so, so let's have you look at some of the some of the results there. Full Members' Cup. Yeah, that, that was, that, I remember that one well because we lost ultimately over two legs against Manchester City in the Northern Final. Uh, and that would have been Hull City's first trip to Wembley. Yeah, I'd have been, I'd have been 11 years old. That would have been absolutely amazing to go to Wembley with Hull City at that point. And it took another another 22 years after that to get there. So, yeah, that was a bit of a killer, was to kind of get so close and, and, and miss out. But, um, yeah, I think for a promoted team to come up and finish sixth in, in the old division two was quite a feat, really. So, yeah, you know, there's some big wins and some big defeats there, I mean, they're kicking around like a, a 5-0 grouping at the den. I guess nobody wants to go there, do they particularly? Um, 2-1 but, victory yeah. over Leeds United. That would have been oh, a, yeah, always a pleasure to beat Leeds United. Yeah. That's, uh, that would have been popular. Uh, and Grimsby Town as well. Um, it's one of those funny kind of derbies that never happens. I think this is probably the last time the clubs played each other. Um, you know, maybe the season after, but um, there's been a huge gap where one of the two clubs has been kind of as high as League One uh, in old money, if you like, Division One in old money, and the two teams never crossed paths, um, despite only being 25 miles apart. So, yeah, it's interesting to see Grimsby Town on there, which is uh, a rarity. It was a double yeah. over Leeds United, so we've moved on. Well, to the... we'll have that. We'll have that. We'll yeah. have that one in the bank. End the season with a couple of home games: uh, Norwich City and Brighton, one 0 and two 0 wins. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think you look at that and you just wonder, don't you, if if the playoffs had been in force in that season instead of the one after, you're going into it on the back of two wins. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? It could have been. It, it could have been a promotion season. But as you yeah. see that they're coming in April, so the fifth start of April when after Grimsby yeah. and then there's. Then there's one, two, three draws and a defeat, and he's dropped down to seven, and then two wins, and then up to sixth. So maybe just that form in that period there in, in April, maybe I don't know if you get a climb down to third, but yeah, I think when you see the final table, I think it was about eighty-nine points up finishing third. There's a fair gap, so I think mm. it was kind of 
it was over in that sense, which I guess was kind of always a problem, wasn't it, in the pre-playoff days, was that the season was over for too many clubs too early. But yeah, you, you kind of think, you know, if you sneak into the playoff on the back of two wins, you know, who knows? It might, it might have been. I mean, chances are probably not. You, you don't tend to get promoted when you finish 16, but um, it could have been. You just never know. I've just and, done uh, a, I've just done a quick check there on of the last 20 home games across all competitions. You only lost two games at home. Wow. That's yeah. some home record. Yeah. That's so, nice. Maybe that's why you used to keep going back. It was, <laughs> we never used to lose. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, right, Andy. So we move on to focus. Yep. So we're going to we're going to jump out the magazine here, Nick, and we're going to do a focus on in yourself. So I'm going to throw some mm-hmm. questions at you. So here we go. Full name: uh, Nicholas James Quantrill. Birthplace: It's Hull. What was your first car? My first car. Um, I was allowed to drive my mum's Mini Metro. It was kind of this horrible sky blue thing. It was like a it was a one liter engine it was horrible i've one of these annoying people who passed my driving test i think about three months after i turned 17 um so i was probably lucky to be able to have any car at that stage i guess but um yeah it was a mini metro so i've no i've no boy rate okay who's your favorite player Ooh, favorite player it's, a, it's, a, it's always a toss-up between the kind of the, the sheer brutality of billy whitehurst mm-hmm. um when i was growing up he was kind of my hero when i was like 10 and 11 um but, you know, I think probably Diego Maradona, you know, what, what can you say about what we said about Maradona? I mean, it's not just the football, is it? It's the whole package with Maradona. It's a, it's a one-man kind of industry, isn't it? Or it was a one-man industry. It's just uh, absolutely incredible talent despite um, Mexico 86 and that, that incident, <laughs> <laughs> which I blame Peter Schulman for. Yeah. Okay. So just for the record, favourite team? Um, well, I mean, the whole city is my lifelong support. There's my lifelong kind of team I've always supported and always will support. But in the last seven or eight years, I've kind of found myself watching more non-league football than anything else. Um, so uh, I'm more likely to go and watch North Ferriby at the moment. And I, you know, I hugely enjoy the North uh, non-league football. And, um, and, and you know, North Ferriby's been like Hull City. It's been an absolute basket case of a club. It's gone from winning the FA Trophy and playing in the National League to literally going bust and starting again at the very bottom of the non-league pyramid. So, um, you know, that's been quite a ride as well at the same time. And, Getting involved with the fanzine down at North Ferriby and writing for that, mm. um, you know, it's, yeah, I just, you know, I just kind of, it, I kind of rediscovered my love of football through non-league football. I think really in the last sort of ten years, um, so I kind of split between the two teams. But um, I'll probably more inclined to go and watch non-league football given the choice. Okay, okay. What's your most memorable match? Oh, most memorable match. It's a, well, I think as a whole City fan, it's a cliche almost, but you know the, the playoff final against Bristol City in 2008 when we got promoted to the Premier League. It's um, at that point in time, it was a you know it was promotion to the promised land, and it kind of didn't didn't any better. It was only when you kind of get there and you realise that for clubs like Hull City, the Premier League is an absolute kind of waste of time as a fan. You know, you you just eleven flesh units in a football kit to let Liverpool and Man United thrash you every other week. You know, there's there's nothing in it really for you as a fan, particularly. But, club in the bottom half of the table there so you know i mean that was just you know that was an incredible occasion to actually be there and kind of see the club promoted to the top division for the first time ever but um yeah i probably picked that up or the fa cup final when against arsenal in 2014 because you, you wouldn't go to that expect in whole city to be 2-0 up after yeah. 10 minutes you know that was just it was, it was like an hour body experience when the second goal <laughs> went in i i think i fell about a, a flight of stairs that went me downwards uh and there was just this kind of like it's almost like an out-of-body experience where the second girl goes in and there's this like 
time stops for a second. Everybody looks at each other. It's like, has this just happened? It was, you know, it was an, it was an incredible kind of moment where everybody just looked at each other and then just went absolutely mental. It was, it was unbelievable. And then you kind of obviously start to think, well, it's got too early now. We shouldn't have gone to love after 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was just, you know, that's the kind of thing you never think it's going to happen as a whole city so far. I never. Yeah. So I'd probably pick one of those two games, yeah. Okay. What's been your biggest thrill? My biggest thrill? Ew. Well, I don't think my wife's ever going to watch, uh, listen to this podcast. So <laughs> I can I can probably park getting married and having a child to one side, can't I? And, and uh, I think as a writer, you know, when you get a book published, you know, actually seeing your, seeing your work as a book, is an incredible moment and one I wouldn't take for granted. So that, that's kind of, that's, that's a massive thrill. But I think biggest thrill, I've had a lot of thrills ever recently with it being on lockdown for I don't know how long. So um, what my daughter loves football. She's, she's 10 years old, coming up with 10 years old. She plays for a team um, and she she made a debut for a new team at the beginning of the season. And all she wanted to do this year was score a goal for her team. Um, and the first game of the season, there were, winning, I think it was about 14 nil. but in the last few minutes and she kind of drifted up the field and the ball broke to her and she scored. Uh, yeah, so she made it something like 15 or 16 nil. It was one of them kind of ridiculous kind of kid games. And she ran off like giving it the full Marco Tardelli celebration for well, the World Cup 82. And, you know, it was just, you know, I just felt such, it was just amazing to see her kind of experience the joy of football and do that. That You know, that was a massive thrill, really. And I, and I love watching her play football and kind of getting... The enjoyment from it that I used to get as a kid, and you know, and that sense of friendship from it, and being part of a team, and mm. and, and working like that. So you know, it's it's, it's a massive field to watch my daughter play football. Okay, lovely. Okay, what's been your biggest disappointment? Oh, uh, in 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 the football sense, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess <laughs> discovering what the Premier League was like for Hull City was was a massive disappointment. You know, that that sense of. Um, that you're just there to make up the numbers and then you kind of add, add along to it the, the ownership issues. You know, you have owners trying to change the name from Hull City to Hull Tigers because I think it's more marketable to a, to a foreign audience. Uh, and, the, and the removal of concessions at the clubs, so if I wanted to take my daughter along at that point, she'd be paying a full adult price to go. Um, you know, it was just a series of disappointments. You know, the, I really feel like the club massively let the fan base down uh, and that damage has been... It's been kind of slowly repaired, but the owners are still there. The alarm's still on the club, and it's going to fester and fester until they go. Um, so, you know, that's just been a massive kind of ongoing disappointment to me has been the way Hull City have conducted themselves over the last decade. Okay. What's the best country that you've visited? Oh, best country. I'm, I'm a massive fan of Iceland. Um, I've, had, I've had the pleasure of going, to, of going a couple of times to Iceland on once on holiday and once to actually talk about my work as a writer at a crime festival there, um, which still my wife hates the fact I went by myself to Iceland for a few days and she didn't get to go with me. Um, but Iceland is, it's like it's like nowhere else on earth, really. You kind of land in the airport and you're about 40 miles away from Reykjavik and you kind of jump on a bus to get there. And it's like driving kind of on the, on the moon almost. Everything's like the size full of volcanoes and craters. It's just like, like nowhere else you've been, really, I think. Iceland so you know and you kind of get the recognition it's a really kind of interesting and cool city and it's actually twinned with Hull so there's kind of it's kind of got quite a northern England vibe to it as well um so yeah I really, I really like Iceland an awful lot and um so I'll probably pick that and possibly Portugal after visiting Lisbon um those are the two I'd pick out I'll, I'll go for Iceland if you really made me pick one okay what's your favorite food favorite food um oh god I'm such I'm a terrible eater I'm not 
I'm the kind of person who would go somewhere and, and pour over the menu for I don't know how long and then have the bag to see what it's like. Mm. Uh, see how it compares to other ones. I would, I would probably pick pizza. Pizza? Uh, pizza, yeah. Or maybe Italian to sound a bit more sophisticated. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, miscellaneous likes. So give me two things that you like doing. Um, two things I like doing. Um, well, I guess I'm always been a massive reader, which I guess is important if you're a writer. So I'm, just, I'm, always, I'm always reading. I love, I love reading. I always have done. Uh, and music. I'm a big kind of music collector. Uh, I, love, I love kind of buying new music and listening to music. So, yeah, those are kind of the two things I do, I guess, outside of football, work and writing. Okay. And on the flip side, miscellaneous dislikes. So two things dislike. that drive you Two things away. I dislike. Um, I try to avoid things I don't like these days. You know, I think you get to a certain age, don't you, where you can kind of almost feel like you know yourself enough to uh, to ignore them. But I'd probably go for dogs. You know, dogs. Uh, I got I got bitten by one when I was younger, and I've just hated them ever since. There isn't a single dog I like, so uh, so dogs are on my list, and probably most adults. To be fair, um, I hate doing the school run. I'm just kind of like stand at the school game. I hate that. Right. Okay. Um, the dogs thing is going to lose you a lot of friends. I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> I don't commit violence upon them. I just don't like them. I mean, I just, pe- you know, choose to cross the road to avoid yeah. them. People, people will accept more accepting you saying, I hate humans, I hate human beings. But as soon as you say, I hate dogs, <laughs> yeah, you hate it. animals. It's okay. like, you know, you say, you never, you never kill them off in the book, because then you're just going to get a look at me all. Mm. Okay, next one favorite TV show of all time? Of all time, um, probably I would go for The Wire, the, the American crime drama, because it's, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a novel on the screen. It's, it's, so, it's, it's a story told from so many perspectives and angles. It's just, it's just a benchmark for kind of quality TV. Um, I have been working my way through The Sopranos during the last lockdown. I've, I've been, for some reason, not seen it before. Um, so I'm into season five at the moment, and that's just incredible as well. You know, it's incredible writing, incredible characters. Um, so yeah, I'd go for that. I'd, I'd probably go for The Wire if, if I was pushed into one, but The Sopranos is pushing it close. Yep, happy with both of those. Favourite singers? So I'll give you two so you can pick singers or groups. Um, well, I'd have to pick the Beatles. I'm just I'm a Beatles obsessive. Um, even even when I was a young kid, when I was like nine and ten, I was I was always a massive fan of the Beatles. Even when it was kind of trendy, kind of really pretty pop days after first. But yeah, I'm just obsessed with the Beatles. So, yeah, I've got that one. I've got the McCartney magazine to read. You know, any magazine with the Beatles on the front, I'll buy it. I'll buy all the books. I'm just I'm just mad for it. I'm just, I just kind of love the Beatles. So that that kind of number one. Uh, and I would probably pick Wilco is my other pick. The American. Yep. Um, kind of alt rock band. Um, I love. I, just, I think Jeff Bridges is an amazing songwriter, and um, you know, the, you just, yeah, I love his books. You know, there's two in them now. There's a kind of like a biography and a book that's about write how to write a song, but it's kind of yeah. really about the creative process, and it's a really interesting read. Uh, and I think you know he's just delivered consistently brilliant music for what 25 years now through through Wilco. So you know, those are my two those two bands really. Okay, favourite actors? So again, I'll give you two. Favourite actors? Um, I'm not really... I don't really tend to pay much attention to actors, really. Um, I just like... I like watching good TV, but I don't pay enough lot of attention to who's in it of things like that. So I've kind of... I'd honestly... I don't think I've got a favourite actor. Okay, no problem. Who's your best friend? And remember, your your wife won't be listening to this. Yeah, my wife won't be listening, so... <laughs> Um, well, I'm still in touch with a friend from school, which kind of, which, you know, which, which I really like the fact that we're in touch, even though we're kind of, he's not really into football, we're not into the same things at all, but we're still in touch with friends. Um, you know, I just feel kind of lucky that I've got a lot of different friends from different areas, you know, like when I'm kind of out as a writer at festivals, you know, there's an awful lot of kind of 
writers who I can kind of call my friend effectively. Um, as a lads, I go and watch football with on a Saturday at North Ferriby and we do the fanzine together and so on. You know, that's kind of really nice to have kind of like friends when you're in your 40s, isn't it? It feels a bit weird to be making new friends in your 40s, but um, that's been a really kind of positive thing over the last few years. So, yeah, I feel very kind of lucky that I've got this kind of mix of friends from all sorts of different areas of life, really. Okay. Who's been the biggest influence on you? So, in terms of writing, we'll go with that. Um, in terms of writing, I think, in terms of the actual writing, and uh, it's probably Ian Rankin, you know, I, I kind of love the way that he writes about his city. He writes about Edinburgh, and that's kind of something I really want to do with my writing. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think, you know, Ian Rankin is probably the biggest influence as a writer. Um, but generally speaking, you know, crime writers write about terrible, terrible things, but you actually meet them, and they're really, really nice people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a genre of writing where there's no airs and graces, really. You know, you can kind of go to a, a festival, um, wherever, wherever you're kind of based in the country, and you'll find the writers just hanging around at the bar, having a drink with people and chatting. It's kind of very, you know, there's kind of like no backstage and front stage and that type of thing. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's nice to kind of be influenced and, and feel empowered and influenced by those writers, really. It kind of make me want to do better. Okay. Uh, last question. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Um, well, that's a good question. I've already thought about that before. Because um, I'm, you know, people always say don't they don't meet you, don't meet your hero because they'll disappoint you. So I, I like to think I, if I met Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, that he wouldn't be a dick. He strikes me as being a really nice person, so <laughs> a decent person. I'd, I'd probably go for a musician, I suspect, given the fact that I've I've been very fortunate to meet most of my kind of writing heroes in that sense. Uh, I would probably go for Jeff Tweedy or Paul McCartney would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I mean, Idris Elba got to interview him first. BBC at last Christmas, didn't he? So maybe, maybe one day I might be getting to do Paul McCartney. That'd be pretty good. Okay, good one, Tom. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, just stay with you for a bit, Nick, before we get back in at the magazine. So, just for the benefit of the listeners who maybe don't know your work, if you could just talk a wee bit about about your work. So you write as, as a private investigator. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So um, I've written four novels in the Joe Garrity series, and he's uh, he's a small time private investigator who operates from his office in the old town of Hull. Um, and it's kind of like, I didn't want to write a cop novel because you have to do an awful lot of research or stuff like mm-hmm. that. And it just kind of, I didn't want to get involved in that. So kind of private investigators can kind of go where they like and do what they like. And uh, I was really interested in the idea of kind of take something that's very uh, American in, in, in its background. You know, it's very kind of, it was kind of something forged in America, wanted by people like Raymond Chandler and update it and put it into a northern setting in the, in the present day. So that was kind of the starting point. And I really wanted to write about my home to give hope. I wanted to kind of explore that and I've been incredibly lucky that when I started to write the books, Hull had just been crowned the UK crap town of the year by some horrible magazine article. Uh, and by the time I'd finished the first three books with the UK City of Culture, it's just the city's been on this massive kind of journey of improvement. And I've had that as a backdrop of the novels. And you know, I think when you when you have them kind of stories and that type of money flowing into a place, you tend to get crimes. So it's been a bit of a gift, really. So yeah, you know, I just like writing uh, mysteries and murder mysteries in my hometown of Hull. Yeah, well, that was one of the things I was going to ask about is how you you've made Hull a sort of character in your book. Yeah. And you know, Princess Avenue, you know, you've got real streets and places there. Is that a wee kind of thrill that you're getting to sort of go? Oh, put this in, put our record shop in, then I'll put yeah, it in. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, the pubs are ones I tend to use mainly. Um, like Joe drinks a lot in the Queens, which is kind of the pub I used to drink a lot in my twenties when I lived. In, that, in the avenues area, which is, if people know it, it's kind of like the, 
it's like a cosmopolitan part of Hull, which sounds almost a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? But uh, that's kind of like where the cool bars are and the cool restaurants are. Um, so yeah, I kind of like to put Joe in there to have food drinking in the kind of like the slightly scummier pub where it's a little bit more traditional. Um, but yeah, you know, I was really keen that I wanted to explore Hull as a character, really, and, and trying to explain it to myself as much as anything. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that became a really important part of the storytelling was that I wanted to write about Hull, um, for better or worse, really. Um, just kind of explain it through my eyes and how I saw it. Um, yeah, and using real places is, is, is a very important part of that, I think. You know, it seems it's almost like I think it's cheating you start to kind of bring in bits that are really there. So I kind of have to carefully work around what's real and uh, what I can actually use. But um, it's, it's kind of a challenge that I like. Uh, yeah, and just again, you touched on it. I was just going to ask you a bit about how was this sort of creative say? Obviously, we had, we had Russ Litton on. Yeah. Uh, Last year, and a writer from Hull. Is it a wee, is it a wee creative hub? There, there is. It's, it's been. I think the city of culture here really kind of give people permission to be creative. Um, there was a lot going on before that, but when the money came in and the opportunities came in to do things, like I, I got the funding to put on a crime writing festival with, with some other crime writers, which brought uh, forty writers from around Europe into the city, and you know we did it in a big venue, and it was brilliant. Um, but you know we only got the opportunity to do that because of the city of culture program. Mm. Um, but it really gave people permission to go out and do what they wanted to do. And, you know, there is a really good, strong writing scene. You know, we say people like Russell Litton, who's been on the, on the podcast before, um, Louise Beach is doing really, really, really strongly at the moment. There's like, a, there's, a, there's a whole kind of scene of writers, really. And it's kind of, it's, it's nice because on one hand, it's kind of competition for you as another writer, but it's also, it's your friends at the same time. You know, they're the kind of people who understand what you're doing and what you go through to do it. So, yeah. You know, yeah, there's a really nice kind of, um, there's kind of a nice scene in the city around writing, whether it's crime writing or poetry or playwriting, whatever it is, is a really kind of vibrant scene at the moment. It's a good place to be. All right, okay, so we go back to the, go back to the magazine. So we jump to page 25, which is uh, Worldwide. So page 25 is Worldwide, compiled by Tony Roach. And uh, there's a few uh, really interesting things here to pull out. So first one we're going to look at is County's Man for Mexico, which is uh, Rashid Harkook of Notts County. has been snapped up by Algeria in their quest for World Cup glory. County's inconsistent but talented striker. <laughs> inconsistent but talented striker is named in Algeria's 40-player squad. Uh, but the Algerians are more concerned with his experience of British football, specifically related to the selection of Northern Ireland in the Group D, than they are in his current playing record for the third division promotion hopefuls. Uh, is, he, is he a player you remember at all? No, no, he, he isn't, to be honest. But um, yeah, there, there's a few coded words in there, aren't they, about um, yeah, talented but inconsistent. You know, yeah. it's, kind of, it's almost coded into it, but these, these foreign players that can't put it on a Tuesday night in Stoke, I think. <laughs> So yeah, I, I don't remember him playing, to be honest, but... Um, yeah, guess, well, it's, it's actually, sorry, it's actually, I guess, not surprising, because he did go to the World Cup. He, he's actually from, mm. uh, he's actually a Londoner. His dad right. was, was Algerian, uh, and he did go to the he did go to the World Cup, but uh, he got injured, uh, and that ended his career. Uh, he got injured in a tackle by Goikachea, uh, the butcher of Bilbao. If you yeah. remember him, he was a guy yeah. with Maradona's ankle. Uh, he had um, sort of, uh, I think uh, he sort of blamed it on the pitch. He sort of turned him and he'd done his knee in on, on the pitch. But just just, uh, just looking at Rashid Harkut up, he's a kind of interesting interesting guy. He was a sort of uh, cult hero at Crystal Palace. 
uh, and he got, he's, uh, had a few brushes with the law as well, which uh, I think made him a kind of interesting character for me. Uh, he got a suspended sentence uh, in his early days for passing off counterfeit notes, which he said that he got when uh, his team played a prison team. Uh, <laughs> he ended up with a load of counterfeit money. And uh, after his playing career, um, he, he got... Um, I think 28 months in jail for conspiring to supply uh, illegal amphetamines. So uh, it's quite an interesting, quite an interesting character. Yeah, yeah. I played against a prison team once and I never got roughly <laughs> money from that. It was very much you counted in and you counted out when you're not allowed to take anything in other than your football boots. So that's, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting uh, story. <laughs> uh, so another couple of wee things there is uh, about Bernd Schuster. Uh, I hear that West German sportswear giant Adidas concerned with the decline of the national team just when excellence is needed most has offered Barcelona's rebel star Bernd Schuster £400,000 to reconsider his anti-national team stance and play in their World Cup midfield in Mexico. Far-fetched, let's hear it from Adidas that I am wrong. Yes, I, thought that was, I thought that was interesting. And Adidas uh, did used to do a, a, a Bernd Schuster boot. Yeah. But uh, he, he quit the national team in 1984 uh, and never never came back. Uh, played with Barcelona and, and, uh, and Real Madrid, but uh, I think he'd have fallen out uh, with the national team manager and just refused to come back. Yeah, it's interesting to say about the decline of the national team, isn't it? Because obviously we know that they want to reach the final of Mexico yeah. 86, and um, yeah, it's only the brilliant and married one of that really kind of undoes them in the end, isn't it? I suppose. So, you know, if, if that's a team in decline, then. Um, <laughs> Uh, another wee bit there, Falcao, Falcao shock, Roberto Falcao, whose transfer from AS Roma to Sao Paulo ensured his inclusion in the Brazilian World Cup squad, has shocked Italy by declaring that he will, he will be back after the 1986 tournament. Falcao, a star of the 1982 tournament in Spain, admitted, I was worried that I would miss the 1986 finals if I was still playing in Europe. Uh, I thought that was thought that was interesting, and I don't know if this is kind of skewered because you hear English commentary, uh, but always they're always sort of big up big up the South Americans who play in Europe and like I said I don't know if that's a sort of English commentary like oh they must be good because they've moved from South America to Europe but interestingly that he moved back to South America to get, get his place in the, in the Brazilian squad yeah true it's interesting uh, to see the reference to Mario Kempes as well isn't it, at the bottom of the page because he feels like he belongs to a different generation to the to the 86 World Cup to me altogether yeah. It's only eight years past Argentina, isn't it? It's entirely feasible he was still playing and, and trying. Yeah. Yeah, so Kempes' uh, goal-scoring sensation of the 78 World Cup finals in Argentina has been told his proposed transfer to Austrian club Vienna has been postponed. The second division Austrians were sure of clinching the deal before the end of their season, but Kempes' current club, Hercules Alicante, refused to release him until they are out of relegation danger in the Spanish league. Interesting. Uh, you spotted anything else there in that worldwide page? No, I was I was looking up. I knew I had a focus on Ratchid Harcook, and guess what his favourite food is? Steak and chips. Steak and chips. <laughs> the boy doesn't let us down. Doesn't let us down. Uh, yeah. Okay then. So we'll we move. Or let's move on to the David Speedy. Uh, sp- Okay, so so this is probably the most 80s article where you're going to get and shoot. So it's headlined, Speedy Gets the Bird. And it's a double-page colour photo spread. And it's uh, Chelsea's David Speedy and uh, beautiful Erica Preston, uh, who was a page three girl uh, at, at the time. And it's 
So they've set the, the, the two of them up here basically in the gym at Stamford Bridge and then out on uh, out on the pitch for a little bit and in the boot room with David Speedy, apparently a photographer, uh, taking uh, pictures of her. Uh, when he's not shooting goals for Chelsea, David Speedy is a real snapshot. The little Scotsman is a keen photographer and dared shoot to arrange a session with one of the sizzling page three girls. The beautiful Erica Preston didn't take much persuading when we asked if she'd like to work out at Chelsea under David's watchful eye. I've often wondered what exercises footballers have to do to keep fit, says Erica. I have to watch my figure and keep in shape, so perhaps I'll pick up a few tips. David couldn't believe it at first when told shoot had fixed it. I've dreamed of the chance of photographing a top model, he said. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just hope I can keep my camera steady. <laughs> so a lot, a lot to unpack. Yeah. And uh, that. Um, any any thoughts on this uh, this week feature? Um, it's like kind of an outtake from a lower level or something, isn't it? It's um, it's it's dreadfully of its time, isn't it? It's um, I'm quite surprised to see it actually in there because even. Yeah, I'm guessing yeah, somebody was reading she was an 11-year-old at the time. That yeah. was massively appropriate to be, to be kind of reading, but um, I wonder if my parents ever flicked through the magazine when it came through the door. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that obviously we'll, we'll never see the like of again, is it? It's, um, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's just it's a bizarre piece altogether, isn't it, really, to be fair? And um, yeah, you know, and I must say, you know, now my daughter's playing football as well, and we're kind of taking much more of an interest in the women's game generally because she likes, she likes to kind of watch and see yourself reflected on, on those players, um, you know, it's kind of a little bit difficult to um, to swallow down, isn't it, really? Mm. So there's, there's a couple of things I've picked out from it. First, the name Erica it seems to be a name, of, again, of its time. I, I When I think of Erica, I think of Erica Rowe, who mm-hmm. was the streaker at, was it Twickenham? Twickenham, she, yeah. She was a streaker at. And um, it's just not a name that you really hear much these days. Um, the second thing is uh, Graham's belt. It is a white... David Speedy's belt. Yeah, a white, thin, I'm going to guess leather belt, shiny leather belt. It's, it's yeah, it's it's not it's not the greatest belt in the world, but uh, again, it's of its time. And I mean, I'm not sure his camera looks particularly impressive either, does it? You think a first vision football would have a slightly more impressive camera. That looks like a cheap piece of kit, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, to, to be fair to him, he, certainly in that middle foot, he looks a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, he's got a quite glacial expression on his face there. You can see that uh, she's really, she sort of knows how to work the camera. Uh, you know, like she's she's playing up quite well uh, in that picture. But yeah, he looks really uncomfortable. Yeah, I, whenever I, I see David Speed also, because he, he, he worked down the mines before he became a footballer, didn't he? So, yeah. you know, it's like just a, a whole world away from where he would have been not that many years previously. Yeah, there's also that picture there. So, so David Speedy, another wee picture of it, is on an exercise bike, and uh, Erica appears to be sort of wagging a finger at him. Um, I don't know if that's a kind of just that sort of henpecking kind of kind of trope. She seems to be sort of slightly annoyed with him and uh, wagging a finger. That's how I read it anyway. Yeah, being his exercising, he's doing his job, isn't he? It seems a strange thing to be uh, getting told off for doing. <laughs> I think they've missed a bit of a joke, haven't they? Because on the front cover of the magazine, we've got the whole kind of who's wearing Perry shirt, then it's not followed up on in there, is it? Yeah. And obviously, we've got the blonde hair, haven't we? But from behind on the front cover, the number nine shirt, like it could be Perry Dixon. Um, but it's not a page three model. It's kind of, I don't know, they've not maybe developed the joke right enough. They're rather in the actual article. Yeah. 
Yeah, all right. And so, yeah, I, I, I teach her very much, very much of its time. Yeah, and also, it also says in the bottom right corner that she's beautiful. It's beautiful. really beautiful. It's a, it's a glory platform on the page. I think that that's uh, the Bernard um, Matthews, Matthews yeah, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, beautiful. All right, so we turn the turn the page, uh, turn the page over then. So we've got John Work. So again, much like uh, much like his former colleague Alan Brazil. So this is a John Work. It's headline now for a first team spot. So it's John Work is Britain's top scorer in Europe. Led Liverpool's scoring charts last season. Has won twenty nine Scotland caps and scored eight first division hat tricks. He says now for a first team spot. So, aye, this is the John Work. Soccer's swiftly changing tides of fortune have been classically illustrated by John Work's struggle to emerge from frustrating limbo at Liverpool, a season that beckoned the 28-year-old Scott turned sour on him before a ball had been kicked in the current campaign. And when he might have been challenging for a place in Scotland's squad that travels to Mexico for this year's World Cup finals, Work has been battling just to win a place in his club's first choice 12. Uh, so yeah, so um, he, he he was in a, a successful Liverpool team and did even though he did quite well in a Liverpool side was never a sort of really but well it was a period certainly where he wasn't a first team choice. Hmm. Wait, he, he broke his I think he broke his ankle just during about the time in this magazine, which ruled him out of the World Cup um, mm-hmm. eighty six. But he's as you say, I think one hundred and eight appearances in total for Liverpool, forty two goals. That's a great. Yeah, it's a great. But, but as you say, he, he he never really claimed a first team spot, whether it be through injuries or whether it be through the other players coming through, or whether it just be he wasn't fancied. But you know, when he when he was in, he did the job. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great piece of writing into where it lists his achievements and then says now for a first team spot. That's kind of that's that's brilliant. Um, but yeah, when I think of John Wall, if I ask you what position did John Wall play, I think you'd probably give me two different answers, wouldn't you? It's kind of he's one of them players into I, I, I couldn't even tell you where he played really. I would probably say he was a midfielder, really. That's probably where I'd pick him as. But yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think you know different people give you different answers on that, which is kind of his problem, isn't it? Really? Yeah, he's a midfielder who scored a lot of goals, and then towards the end of his career, I think because I think he played on until he was about forty, and I think he moved back to a sort of sweeper position. He played mm. more than a defensive role towards the end of his career, but but yeah, again, he's one of those guys who was. Uh, I uh, um attacking as much as he was uh I couldn't even think about him defending. Again, it's like those midfielders, you know what I mean, like Graham Soonis kind of thing. You wouldn't say he was a defensive midfielder or a just a guy who was kind of all, all, all over the place kind of thing. Um but yeah, I so John Work and interesting they talk there about his 14 goals he scored in the UEFA Cup. Uh, 36 goals in all competitions uh, in 1980-81 included 14 in Ipswich's successful UEFA Cup campaign, a record for a British player in Europe. So it, it got me to thinking uh, now about scorers in, in Europe, because nowadays you can score 14 goals in a European run, your team will get knocked out in the last 16. Mm. Uh, we, we all the, you know, the group games and qualifying games kind of thing. But in those days, if you're scoring that many goals, then your team's usually in the final. Yeah, you can't. You just can't compare them now, can you? You you can't compare that sort of record to to them nowadays. Yeah, and it just uh, points out there at that point, Work had rifled 165 goals and 460 senior outings for his two English clubs. So yeah, that uh, just shows you, even though he's he, he was he was doing quite well and had a good record, he was struggling to get into that Liverpool team. And as we spoke about earlier on, only one substitute at that time. I mean, nowadays a guy like that would obviously be playing. Every in the squad playing every week at some at some point, 
Yeah, yeah. It's before the days of rotation as well, isn't it? Where the 11 was the 11, wasn't it? So yeah. I mean, you'd have probably pitched up at Woodbury Park to play for the reserves midweek or something, wouldn't you? Where you know, that just won't happen anymore, would it? It's um, yeah, massively different times. Yeah. All righty then. So we move move on a page or two. Anything here? So two pages we've got here. Owen beats in injury jinx. That's Gary Owen at West Bromwich Albion. And the other side is frustration. Mick Duxbury of uh, Manchester United. Any thoughts here on either of these features? Um, well, I like the cartoon more on this page. It was a slightly funnier cartoon than we saw earlier on in the magazine. It's uh, it's not brilliant, but it's a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, Mick Duxbury is another of those players, isn't he? That was a bit like John Walk, wasn't he? One of those who could play probably much anywhere on the pitch almost for his team and, you know, would do a decent job, but was never going to nail down there. Uh, First choice space, I suspect. Really, it was kind of almost just slightly below the level that was required for a team at the top end. I would say, um, yeah. yeah, maybe maybe injuries didn't help him in that sense because he did kind of fade away from this point, didn't he? Really, but um, yeah, you know, I remember him as one of those players who was kind of semi permanently injured. Really, most of his career, that's my kind of perception of him. In the Gary Owen one, did you read about the injury? Yeah. It was so he says. What is it? He says my wife had just cleaned the ceramic tile floor mm-hmm. in the kitchen and it was still damp. I went to close the glass door, slipped, and my right leg went crashing through the glass, causing severe lacerations. My natural instinct was to pull my leg back, which meant that the glass cut in both directions. 10% of my calf was severed, but fortunately my Achilles tendon was not damaged. That is absolutely horrific. And and he he came back from that and and played um, after that. But also he talks about building um, his own house, and mm-hmm. I, I like what he, I like what he says because he qualifies it by saying, "Well, I never actually build it brick by brick. I sort of help design it." And quite, you know, because quite often people say, "Yeah, I've built my own house," and leave it at that. And you think, "Well, have you really? Have you really built your own house?" But he's 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 straight in there to say, "Well, I, you know, I didn't put the effort in. I just okayed the drawings." So well mm-hmm. done for that. It was just, he's wearing a West Bromwich Albion strip that's got in place, place of a sponsor. It's got that no smoking uh, logo. Yeah, that's yeah. I think that did they finish the season bottom of the league, West Brom, like this season? They, were, they went down, didn't they? You know, I think it was a really poor season for him, wasn't it? But um, yeah, that injury just makes me shudder. I don't, I don't really think about that kind of injury. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind writing horrible crimes, but I can't kind of <laughs> think about stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing on that. On that page is the and I think I saw this in another magazine recently and I, I meant to mention it the advert so it says for advertisement space and shoot please contact and I just love the name Terry there's there's your there's your new body <laughs> Terry Edinburgh it just sounds like a yeah, yeah it's a great name. yeah you know it's, it sounds like a character off um phone jacker or something like that the the, the TV show <laughs> Terry Edinburgh brilliant I love it, it sounds like he's what I've ended up in Welsh novel doesn't he or something that'd be brilliant <laughs> yeah I, just you saying that though about um, injuries, um, Nick, isn't your uh, you, um, your main guy? Isn't he a former rugby player who lost his career through? That's injury? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of deliberately wanted to be a rugby league player rather than a footballer for my books because you know rugby league is such a defining feature of the city of Hull that I could. When you have two clubs in a city, you can have a lot of fun there, can't you? Really, it's uh, you kind of got the inbuilt rivalry, so it was a lot of fun to kind of make him a rugby player rather than a footballer. So yeah, that it was kind of a deliberate decision really to kind of edge away from my favourite sport and make them rugby league. Did, did you go to see rugby or did you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it was the first part I was taken to as a child. You know, my parents took me to watch Hulkington Rovers in the early 80s. Uh, and that was when there was a really, really good team. They were probably the best in the country at the time. Um, 
but once I went to once I was taken to the football, it was just always football for me. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I do enjoy going to watch the rugby every now and again. I'll, I go from time to time, and uh, you know, it's a great sport when you kind of get two really well matched sides playing against each other. It's brilliant, but it's one of them kind of sports where there's too much of a mismatch in it, and mm. you know, it happens too often. And you know, it's not really a particularly well run sport, I don't think either. So. Right. It's, you know, the potential's there to make it a really kind of great game, but it's not its not kind of in the right place at the moment, I don't think. Right. Well, even up here in uh, Scotland, too, you know, you, you don't really follow rugby league, but how Kingston Rovers is a, is a name you're familiar yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they said they were probably the biggest, or the, sort of the most successful team in the early 80s in the country. You know, they, and the biggest rival is probably Hull FC as well, so that kind of gives you that extra right. kind of level. But, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it was just it was just a brilliantly run team in the early 80s. It was, it was fantastic. And... Uh, <laughs> The ground was probably about a mile away from our house, so that's probably why I was taken there, really. It would be the kind of thing that would be on live as well on Grandstand on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. You get live rugby league. Yeah, it feels of this era, doesn't it, what we're talking about in shoot. It kind of feels like a kind of a game from the 80s, doesn't it? It's not really Mm. kind of, you know, from what it should have done, I don't think. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of, when you catch a game and it's on the telly and it's an even match, it can be brilliant. You know, it's a really kind of great game to watch. But, say, it just doesn't kind of, Play. It didn't pan out that way often enough for me, really, as a viewer. It's, it's often just too mismatched between the two teams. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't I think, you know, it's a, it's a great game. I played it once and I lost it too, so I played football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, and this is we go over the over the page here. So, um, uh, fact, I know because we, we, we jumped. So I was wanting to we go back to the... Yep. And the training, to to. yeah, the Keegan's back, which was next to the whole city uh, picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I, I quite like this because there's a great photograph here. So the article's Keegan's back, but only for the kids. Former England captain Kevin Keegan has vowed never has vowed never to play full time soccer again. I think he's just retired. <laughs> vowed never to play full time soccer again. <laughs> but 34 year old Kev, who lives in Marbella, Spain, with his wife Jean and two young daughters did agree to make a comeback at QPR recently. Kevin explains, I signed a contract with Thames TV to cover the World Cup finals, but I didn't want to be just an expert on their... An, an expert is in inverted commas, um, on their panels. I told Thames I wanted to get involved in other things, like organising coaching schools for youngsters with, with the emphasis on playing for fun rather than professional commitment. I wanted to coach kids with all levels of skill, not just those already playing for a club or school. And Tim Sport ran a competition and the 20 winners spent a weekend with Kevin at Queen's Park Rangers. Joining Kevin, some of the sessions was his former Liverpool and England teammate, Ray Clements. Sadly, we may never see Kevin in action again, but for one weekend, at least he was king of the kids. And there's a great picture there of Kevin Keegan and Ray Clements uh, at the QPR pitch with this bunch of kids. Um, I, I, I thought of maybe trying to put it on Twitter to see if anybody we could maybe locate one of yeah. those kids, but uh, a smashing picture. Well, the, the, the two on the right are destined for the stage, aren't they? Uh, the, the, two, <laughs> the two kids there, they're definitely in fact. The one because I've posted this before and I couldn't remember who it reminded me of. The one on the right reminds me of a commentator, and I'm not sure if it's a Eurosport commentator or something like that, but he's a spitting image of. A commentator, but the two of them, yeah, they're destined for stage. Then you've got the the wee guy in the left hand side who looks as though somebody's picked him up by the collar and just <laughs> plopped him down there. He because he, he looks petrified as well, is really dishevelled. And then you've got the one in the middle with the the mullet. I'm not even I, sure I, if that's a boy or a girl. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's a girl, I think. I think it's probably yeah. a girl, but 
yeah, it could be. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a brilliant collection of um, just faces, looks, um, strips as well, and kits and whatnot. Yeah, and, and the wee the wee guy in the middle and and this uh, burgundy tracks it kind of looks a bit thirty five. <laughs> he also reminds me of somebody else, and and, and I, I can't for the life of me think who it is. It maybe a fact uh, Mark Nelson. Maybe he's got a sort of Mark okay. Nelson look to him. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, like you say, great kits, and they've got the Patrick. They all get the Patrick trainers on, apart from Ray Clemens, who's decked out fully in Adidas. Um, but I've all got the Patrick gear on, Patrick socks, Patrick trainers, hmm. uh, and a couple of kids wearing that Keegan's Kids T-shirt that says on it, "Keegan's Kids pass on your postcode." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. the headline's a little bit unfortunate, isn't it? Keegan's backbone for the kids. It's really, you know, we, it's not the kind of thing we want to be seeing, is it anymore in this day and age? <laughs> um, um, but I think the the kid who's second left in the yellow shirt looks a little bit like Ray Parler to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe I don't think he'll be the right age, really, but he's got a bit of Ray Parler about him, I think. The the kid just above him to the left in the, the red, maybe a wee bit sort of Eric Black to him. Okay. Redeem yeah. striker. Yeah. But yeah, we can maybe try that, Andy, sticking it on Twitter again and seeing if we get, see if we can try and track somebody down from that. The fact that just beside Ray Clemens, that's, um, well, that's, um, Kevin Bridges, right? You think? Okay. No, well, it's obviously not, but that it's got that look. <laughs> yeah, it's a cracking photo. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we came back to that. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Okay, so let's let's move on. Last minute, the last few pages, of the last few pages of the magazine. Uh, so there's a bit about the Scottish Cup, uh, Scottish Cup games, easy street, one way traffic, and the road to Hamden. So preview the Scottish Cup games: Celtic v Queens Park, Hibernian v Air United. Dundee United v Kilmarnock and Kelly's Mission Impossible. So Ali's away day fear. Former Hibs favourite Ali McLeod takes his Air United side to Easter Road with two major regrets. First of all, laments the former Scotland boss, I haven't really been back at Air long enough to get the team into proper shape for a match of such importance. And secondly, in all my years as, as manager, I reckon Easter Road has been an unlucky venue for me. It's never been the happiest of hunting grounds. So, uh, yeah... Ali McLeod there, a nice wee picture of him. A great sort of Scottish anti-hero. Um, a, a guy who actually did a reasonable job as a Scotland manager, but he's forever tainted with the disaster of Argentina. Mm. Very good club manager as well, which yeah. a lot of people don't really give him credit for because of. Yeah, the, the and they loved, they loved him in here. Yeah, yeah. And and, and the, you know, the work he did for Aberdeen paved the way for... Yeah, for Alex Ferguson, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, I think they mentioned it here, but he used to play for Hibs. So before he went yeah. down to Blackburn, um, he, he played for Hibs back then. Uh, and there's a picture of Tommy Burns who was mentioned earlier on. Uh, and that uh, got a smart Celtic kit with what looks like that sort of stitched on sponsors logo. <laughs> it sort of looks like, you know, uh, they just sort of sewed on the sponsors logo on, on his shirts that didn't have it. But he seems to be. Twisting there as was his as was his his want, uh, and, and and quite a good wee picture there. Queens Park, the Queens Park v Dumbarton. Queens Park's Mark Smith weaves his way past the Dumbarton defence. Here's a good wee picture of the old Hamden, uh, with absolutely empty terraces. Yeah, it's always interesting to see as well in you know, like Paul Stewart there on the right hand side of the magazine because when I see Paul Stewart now, he's quite a rotund man and yeah. uh, he's quite an angry man when he's kind of shouting <laughs> at his team. And he there he looks like a you know completely different. Into it. it's, it's quite. Uh, it's quite bizarre to see him 30 years younger as, as, a, as an athlete rather than 
Yeah. Like another like another wet coach driver when I see him these days or something. <laughs> and that's a classic poster look there with the shirt yeah. over the shorts and the and the stock yeah. socks rolled right down to the ankles. He was a great player, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he yeah, he, he really was. He was a terrific player for Dundee United. Uh, anything else, Andy, that you've seen? Just uh, just the results of it. So they were pretty close. Celtic only beat Queen's Park two one. Hibs only beat Air United one 0 Dundee United and Kelly, which is mentioned there, went it was one one and United won it on the replay. Um, but the 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 other games that are so there's other games that are mentioned, but Aberdeen eventually won this three 0 against Hearts. So this this was the season that Celtic won the league on the last day by beating St Mirren and Hearts lost to to Dundee. And you know it was heartbreaking for them. So it was double heartbreaking for them in the cup as well. So they they lost out in the the league and the cup. So that that was, you know, a very iconic season, but very heartbreaking season for 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 Hearts and I guess neutrals as well. Yeah, I don't know if you know Nick that 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 wee bit of um Alex Ferguson uh, kidology that he did wee bit of mind games um when when uh, the Hearts. Because uh, the Hearts had lost the league in the last day of the season, the week mm-hmm. before, and uh, Ferguson had got his players when the Hearts players come off the bus for all the Aberdeen players to say to them, "Oh, hard lines last week. Oh, you were unlucky, boys. Eh? Oh, that must be heartbreaking." Uh, just, just to just put it into their memory, put it into their minds that they lost the league last week. It's one of our own. He's in his own league. But yeah, I remember, I remember Hearts losing the league on the last day. That, that was kind of uh, that must have been. Yeah, awful because I guess your hearts haven't really been backed since then, have they? That was probably the last time we've had uh, you know, a team really kind of maybe break the dominance of the Glasgow too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they went like 28 games unbeaten or something mm-hmm. like that, actually. And Clay Bank had been the last team we beat them uh, in the league and they went on that run. And we, Clay Bank played them second last day of the season and they beat us 1 0. But I think they were expecting to beat us maybe four or five. And had they done, because it came down to goal difference, and ha- had they beat us, like four or five, nothing. Um, because we only didn't get relegated that season due to um reorganization of the, the league. The league became 12 teams instead of 10 the next season, so that was the only reason we didn't get relegated. So I think they expected to hammer us, but they didn't only beat us one nothing. And the other hats team of John Henry and um, people like John Colquhoun and um, John, John Colquhoun and uh, yeah, John yeah. Robertson and, and the lads at the back, um, Craig Craig Levine, Levine. Well. yeah, uh, Sandy Jordan would have been there as well. I think um, we spoke about this before, but Craig Levine was was sick for that last game, and so he, he never mm-hmm. played that that last game. And you know, a lot of people think if if he had played, it would have been a, a different story. But it's all what ifs, isn't it? Yeah, all right, okay. So moving to the, the last last page we've got now. So it's a focus on Tony Cotty of West Ham. It's a picture of him there in that quite smart West Ham kit. Uh, Avco with the uh, horizontal white pinstripes across it, and that's uh, is that Viv Anderson behind him there of uh, Arsenal, yep. yeah, and, and uh, quite smart Arsenal yellow, uh, yellow and blue away, uh, away kit. Uh, anything you picked out here? Uh, his answers, yeah, there was a couple I liked. Um, there were some, some amusing ones, didn't it? As you'd expect, you know, like his uh, his hobbies include having a lion on his day off. That's kind of uh, is that a hobby, really, having a lion. <laughs> I'm not quite so sure, but I quite like the fact his favourite TV shows are only fools and horses, Minder and the Sweeney. You know, that's that'll do me. London, yeah, yeah, that'll do me. And um, I kind of quite like as well the fact that he lives in a one-bedroom flat in in Hornchurch, Genesis. Which you know, imagine if you're a striker now in the Premier League at that kind of level, that like Tony Cotty was. You'd you live in a mansion, wouldn't you? Yeah. And then he's living in a one-bedroom flat in Essex. It's um, 
And then that just shows how the money has kind of multiplied onto over the last sort of couple of decades since Tony was playing. <laughs> I think for, for me, his favourite childhood um, player was Pop Robson, Brian <clears throat> Robson of West Ham, <clears throat> and his favourite current player is Brian Robson of Manchester United. So I just found that there was a wee bit sort of quirky that both his, his favourite old player and his favourite current player were the same names, but different people, obviously. Yeah. Uh, club honours, only a London standard five-a-side winner's medal so far. <laughs> uh, I tell you, one thing I remember about, uh, about Tony Cotty was after his, his playing career, I think it was during the 2006 World Cup, he used to do this radio commercial for a thing called Go To My PC, which was, <laughs> which was basically about getting your uh, work desktop on your home computer so you could skive off work to watch the World Cup. That was the whole angle of it. It was like the World Cup's coming on, and I remember the advert was him going, I don't want you to miss a minute of the action. Uh, so it was basically skiving off your work, but you weren't no knowing you were there because you could have all your work stuff on you. It's probably before its time, actually, that to go to my PC. But I just remember that. I just remember that commercial that he used to do. Yeah, brilliant. And he also wants to score more goals than Frank McAvenny as well, doesn't he? That's quite a nice touch. I mean, McAvenny, when he came that season, he was absolutely on fire, wasn't he? For yeah, a, he was, yeah. What a player he was. Yeah, as you commented earlier on, though, with the with the blackout, you know, a lot of people missed a lot of McAvenny's mm. goals and didn't really know who he was. Um, yeah, well, yeah. that was that was a feature they did on uh, St. Gravesy. They did. They took him out of London right, Bridge yeah. and stopped people. He said, do you know who this is? Do you know who this is? Do you remember they stopped Billy Connolly? Mm. And he was like, oh, yeah, I do. It's Frank McAvenny. Because <laughs> nobody knew it. It's like this is a top scorer in English football, but nobody knew who he was because football wasn't on the telly at the time. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we've got to the end of the, the magazine then, uh, Nick. Brilliant, thank you. So here we are. So, what are you up to at the moment then? Uh, at the minute, I'm just finishing a new novel. So, um, that's kind of taking up the next, I guess, month or term. We've just delivered our Prime Writer Festival, Hull Noir, as an online festival um, a couple of months ago. So, we're kind of getting to the idea now of how we're going to fund it again for next year, hopefully. So, yeah, I mean, just writing, trying to get events back on and trying to work out whether we do events online or whether we do them in person. Yeah. It's that kind of tricky period at the moment where nobody really knows what kind of mm-hmm. the rules are and what they're going to be like in three or four months' time. So, yeah, just trying to focus on the writing, really, and um, we'll go from there. Okay, and where can where can people find your work or find you on social media? Yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter under my own name at Nick Quantrill. That's always the easiest way. Uh, and my website's nickquantrill.co.uk. So I'm always around online when I should be writing and doing some work. Right, and get, books, get your books get your books online, the Kindle? And- oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, if you, you can get them in all the usual places online uh, and, and, and the usual places you'd, you'd want to get them. So that's, that's dead easy, yeah. Well, what's yeah. the preference? Because I, I know you can get them direct or from Amazon. So what's the preference? Uh, can, probably the easiest way to get them off the publisher direct that's that's probably the best way to do it which is fahrenheitpress.com um, or you know if people use Amazon then um, fair play they're on there I'm just thinking what, what puts more money in your pocket that's all I'm thinking <laughs> well that's yeah getting get through the publisher is always the best way yeah, yeah. Although, I mean if, you, if you're desperate for a signed copy I can always get them floated out people from the phone so yeah any, any, any sale is a good sale yeah brilliant <laughs> charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. 
They provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. All right, Andy, over to you. Okay, so thank thank you, Nick, for, for joining us on Shoot the Breeze. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and it's been really interesting and entertaining talking to you. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been, a, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. I've loved doing it. It's great. Excellent. I've been uh, regressing back to my youth. It's been fantastic. <laughs> Good stuff. And I'm, I'm so glad. I think we, we never spoke. We spoke about it before we started the show. You actually went and bought the magazine, didn't you? I did, yeah. I thought, you know, I wonder if I can still get a copy of it. And I just had a look on eBay and there was a, a comic shop in London selling it. So I thought, I'm, I'm having it. I'm <laughs> going to have it. It's like a memento of doing the show. So, yeah, yeah £10 well spent in my book. Brilliant. I'm oh, glad to hear it. So, uh, yes, thank, thank you very much. And thank you, Tom, for being Tom. Thank you, Andy. And thanks to everyone who has listened to the podcast. You know, subscribe, share it. You can actually listen uh, on YouTube now as well. Um, we're, we're starting to sh- share more clips, video clips from the show. So follow us on YouTube, subscribe there. Subscribe using your favourite podcast tool, application, whatever. Uh, go to the website and support a charity partner and just enjoy it and give us some feedback. Uh, Until the next time, let's shoot the breeze.